Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let the celebration begin. Come to Cabela's 4th of July sale and gear up for Independence Day. Get 50% off Cabela's American Flag Chairs 2-Pack and 50% off a Caravan 10-foot by 10-foot shelter. Plus, get 40% off an Abu Garcia Cardinal Sapphire Spinning Combo and 10% off all in-stock canoes and kayaks. Don't miss Cabela's 4th of July sale, in-store and online at cabelas.com. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny LaRue, your host, and so thankful to have you with us for this 100th episode of the podcast. And I'm thrilled to have on Ben Golliver of Sports Illustrated. I think we've had some of the best conversations that have happened on this podcast, and this one is no exception. We start out with the Warriors and their remarkable run, and All-Star Balloting, he just wrote a nice piece for Sports Illustrated. And then we'd spend a heart of it, I think, talking about the playoff picture, because it's a little bit early, but I think it, we're kind of getting the general contours now, and he's somebody who watches a lot of the league. So that's a conversation that I think was really fun to have. And then, of course, we go on on sidetracks, because that's what he and I enjoy doing so much, and that's why the podcast is an hour and 55 minutes. So I hope you enjoy it. I, I didn't even really consider splitting it, because I think it's a conversation that doesn't have to be listened to all in one shot, but is, is definitely works as a cohesive thing. So hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Oh, my pleasure, Danny. How's it going, man? Doing well. How are you? I'm good. Uh, I'm, I'm really good. Can we start any place other than the Warriors? I don't think so. I think that's kind of the rule. Sort of like when I was doing my first quarter awards, it's like, well, probably the guys on the undefeated team should be up there. You know what I mean? And, and same thing for the coach, too. It's like, well, you can make cases for you know, Steve Clifford or some of these other guys who are out there overachieving, but there is a team, you know, 15 days away from Christmas that still hasn't lost a game and, and may not lose a game for a while. It really is crazy, and I don't think that Luke Walton has done the best job coaching, but I also think that it is extremely awkward to give other people plaudits when his team is 22-0. and Well, here's my thing defending Luke Walton. You always want to have your best players playing well, right? I mean, that's sort of the sign of a good coach. You put your players in position to succeed. And both of his best players, Steph Curry and Draymond Green, are playing the best basketball of their career. And even if that's the product of Luke Walton basically setting them free and not getting in the way and just staying out of their way and encouraging uh, you know, them to just play with their normal basketball instincts, I think you get credit for that. Uh, and it will be interesting to watch. The, the one transition I'm interested in when, when Kerr comes back is do they tighten up at all? Uh, you know, Kerr, Curry especially has had you know, quite a few – ugly turnovers, that's not really anything new. 
but does he tone it down a little bit? Because he's just playing so ridiculously free right now. And then same thing with Draymond Green in transition. Is there going to be an instinct from Kerr to rein in some of that? You know, I don't know. But that's just one thing I'm going to be watching once he does come back. That's a great point, and I, I feel like it's it's going to be one of those things where Kerr's going to probably let it slide a little bit early, and then it'll start frustrating him enough that he'll get back to his normal trend of behavior. I think that's kind of the way it would, I think it'll work for him, just having spent a year around that team. Because, you know, I, I think that he he sees the way they're playing, and he I don't think he would want to do anything to change it. But I feel like there is a middle ground, particularly for Curry, between what he's doing and maybe being a little bit cleaner. Yeah, I think so. At the same time, it's kind of funny. I think I was joking about this the other night. Like, if you go from Jackson to Kerr and now to Walton, it's like this straight line, you know, decreasing in terms of, like, zero Fs given, you know, in terms of, like, how the coaching philosophies go. You go from, like, sort of like the very – you know, almost anal Mark Jackson, and now you've got this relaxed Luke Wall. And it's sort of like if you put, like, the big Lebowski or, like, Wayne from Wayne's world as their coach, like, would Curry and Draymond continue to ascend to even higher uh, heights? I don't know. I mean, I'm just, you know, kind of joking here. But uh, I do wonder if there's going to be a little friction. Like, do those guys come back to us a little bit? Is there some change to their game? Uh, but I think part of what they're doing also, too, is just compensating for injuries, right? It's like – if you've got Harrison Barnes out of the lineup and you're, you're trying to plug and play these guys who aren't you know, quite as good as him, uh, you know, maybe Clay's going to miss some time with his ankle, or, or if not, he might not be 100%. Uh, you just got to lean more heavily on those guys, and I think you know, they're playing so confidently that they're just kind of entering their natural state, and I think it's okay. You know, I, don't, I don't really have a problem with how loose they've been. I mean, clearly the results you know, back up uh, their approach. Uh, but I think it's definitely something to watch, especially like you're mentioning, heading in towards playoff time. I mean, can you go into a playoff series and have the kind of turnovers Curry's been having recently? I don't know, maybe not. And and also just kind of some of the lax play, like what happened in, in portions of some of their games. I mean, they have the confidence that they. Uh, I think of something that Draymond said against the Clippers. He said when they when they won the game at Oracle, he said we're never desperate. You know, like that's just where they are now, and that's a great thing overall. There are certain moments where that's a little bit of a bad thing. But one of the there are a lot of things with this Warriors team that are remarkable. And as somebody who sees them so much, it's kind of amazing how much they astonish me. But one of them is that while this is an incredibly talented team and this is an incredibly balanced roster, this is not the kind of top heavy group that you think of with the you know, the the ones that go on these runs. I mean, you think of like the Miami team with LeBron Wade and Bosch. You think of the the Lakers' dominant teams of various shades and various times. They, they Obviously, Stephen Curry is playing at a level that we haven't seen much, if ever. And Draymond has been great. But this isn't a, a, a team that is dominant in a way that I think is really reflective of other dominant teams. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, first of all, they're starting lineup. And, and if you want to throw, you know, Izzili, his work when he was kind of you know, plugging in in that role, has just been, you know, such a high bar that it's almost intimidating to other teams. Like, I really think if, if you're a team out there, like especially like the Clippers, where you've got uh, the top-heavy two- or three-star model, uh, or even if you're like LeBron and the Cavaliers and, and you're kind of in this big three reality, and you're just mentally weighing the idea of how you're going to match up sort of, you know, quote-unquote three-on-five against the Warriors, I mean, that's got to be super intimidating. And then I think you throw on top of that Iguodala. I mean, to me, Iguodala has been the sixth man of the year so far through the first quarter. Uh, of course, the per-game numbers are never going to be huge for him, especially scoring-wise. But, you know, his net rating, real plus-minus, all that stuff, totally off the charts. 
Uh, his impact when he's in there, especially with the smaller lineup, has been unbelievable. Uh, and I think he has a way of kind of you know keeping them afloat and, and making it so it's not that top-heavy thing that you're talking about. I think he's been their third most important player so far. I don't know if that's controversial or not. I would agree with you. Yeah, coming off Clay's big night, maybe not the best timing for that statement, but you know, at the same time, I, I think night to night, I think he's there. Yeah, uh, it, it's it's interesting between the two of them because Clay's value is something I, I think Nate Duncan did a gr- good job of articulating this and sold me on it during the finals, which is that part of his value is that his presence matters to defenses regardless of whether he's making shots. And that's a really hard thing to explain and to quantify. Basically, if you go back and watch the finals, the argument is Amon Shumpert never left him. And so we talk about how the way that teams defend Curry leads to the Warriors being playing four on three. But really, functionally, when they don't leave Clay, it's three on two. And three on two is even easier to exploit than four on three. Totally. I was talking about this with uh, Kevin Pell last night. It's just sort of like the mutualism between Curry and Draymond Green where maybe they're not like the all-time greatest, you know, two-man pairing ever. I mean, you've got other guys up there, you know, Jordan Pippen and Magic and Kareem, whoever else you want to put in that conversation. But, like, in terms of their ability to make life easier for each other, like the skills are just, like, perfectly complementary. And now what you're saying about Clay it makes a lot of sense, too. I mean, now you've got this sort of, like, triangle mutualism situation where uh, each little bit that – uh, those individual guys are bringing to the table has direct positive impacts on the other members of that little core group. And, uh, you know, for that reason, it gets pretty interesting when you look at the all-star stuff. Like Curry, to me, obviously is going to be a starter, probably the leading vote-getter. Draymond, I think he's going to get in. I think the coaches are going to take care of him. Does Clay fall outside? Is he a victim? Does he lose his spot to Draymond sort of uh, on the bench, or does he wind up on the outside looking in? I think it's an interesting question because, like, do you give them three all-stars as a sort of validation for their start? Like, do they have to have three guys? Uh, or does it wind up being Clay somehow gets snubbed? I don't know. So you you not only have that awkwardness, but something I believe what Scott Howard Cooper was talking about today is that the same coach is not allowed to coach the all-star game in consecutive years. So how does that work in terms of Luke Walton and Steve Kerr is also really interesting because this could be a team that has two all-stars, which could be the same as other teams, and doesn't have the coach. Yeah, that is really interesting. They're probably going to have to make that one up on the fly. Like, I can't imagine that's been a thing before. Uh, yeah, because, I mean, like think have, about when the all-star game up. is. Like, how often would you have an interim coach? Would you have an interim coach take over a team that just that was just the best team in the conference the last year? I guess the way they would get around that is if Curry does come back before the All-Star break, then they can just give it to Pop. But if he doesn't come back before the All-Star break, then you're kind of stuck, and maybe you do have to give it to Walton. I don't know. Is there an official ruling on that? Uh, appar- apparently they haven't ruled on it yet, but it's just it, I think the idea is that they're, they're kind of hoping they don't have to, but if yeah. they do have to, then they will. But, yeah, I think that, I think that you can give it to Walton – Anyway, personally, I, I think that I think that one of the frustrating things about All Star, and we this can be a way into that that we can talk about it later, is for me, if it's about the fans and it's about rewarding the people, then why have a restriction like that? And the other one, we'll get into this a little bit more in a second, but I get really frustrated since I don't think any fans care about the conference structure that that arbitrary construct is on top because that is going to really screw up the All-Star game this year. Well, I think on the first point, the reason why they have that rule is because 
you know, you're used to dealing with like the least cynical, amazing team of all time. Like these are like the True. happiest, go luckiest guys, who you know I'm sure are m- more excited than most superstars uh, to go be a part of it. I mean, think about how neg- you know, how much negativity there was towards sort of the All Star game and being dragged into, it, and Pop's always joking about it and. Uh, I think that they just put that rule in place to kind of save some of those guys from having to do it every single year. Now they've created this monster in the Warriors where they would probably, like, you know, volunteer happily to go and, and have their five starters be the West team if, if that's what people wanted. You know, they're just kind of that team. So I think that makes, you know, Golden State more the exception than the rule here. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, the West versus East thing is always a mess. The front court versus backcourt thing continues to be a mess. Uh, you know, Kobe getting into the front court in the West is going to definitely, uh, you know, bump somebody like Blake Griffin off the starters, which is rough because, you know, Blake's kind of in that MVP conversation. Uh, and now he's going to be, you know, forced to be a reserve, most likely. And then, you know. Well, so who do you, who do you think like, gets the, who do you think gets the other starting spots in, on the for, front court section? So I, I'm just guessing that Anthony Davis and Kevin Durant are going to carry the fan vote. That uh, seems you look fair. Back at their, if you look at their previous vote totals, like those guys are so high that I think, you know, Durant being healthy this year compared to last year, his votes should go way back up. And, and Anthony Davis, even maybe if he's been a little bit of a disappointment, like he's still kind of in that same echelon. But yeah, I mean, somebody's getting, you know, if it's not one, of, if it's not Blake, then it's one of those two guys who's going to be left off, or it's somebody like Marcus Saul from last year who was a starter. Uh, you know, you look, you know, down the list, Tim Duncan. Uh, you know, Kawhi Leonard, maybe he could have a big push this year. I don't know. Um, you know, somebody's getting shortchanged for yeah. sure. And when you look at the East-West thing, like you were mentioning earlier, uh, again, I think the West roster is pretty loaded compared to the East, you know. I mean, especially uh, at the point guard position, you know, there could be guys like Reggie Jackson, Kemba Walker, uh, Isaiah Thomas kind of sneaking into the Eastern Conference's mix just because of, uh, you know, a fairly shallow point guard crop. In the West, it's like, you know, Mike Conley can't even get onto the snubs list because there's so many point guards. Yeah, Conley's a guy who I've thought about a lot just because he might end up being the player who has the best career to never make an all-star game, and it's not anyone's fault. You know, it's it's not a situation where he's gotten snubbed too many times. It's just that he had the bad circumstance of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. But my guess on who's going to be snubbed is a guy you talked about in your piece that just came out is Derek Favors, who I think un- unequivocally, if it were right now, obviously there's still plenty of time, I think he unequivocally deserves an all-star spot, but he might not get it because of Kobe. Totally. And and also just because there's so many other candidates. I mean, you, this is just a ridiculous field in the Western Conference, again, because uh, so many of the guys who were injured in previous years are sort of back, you know? And I think that's one nice thing about this year is that there's really a crunch is on because the last two seasons, really, there's been pretty significant injuries that have, uh, you know, damp in the field, and the only guy really this year who's kind of out of the mix is in the East, in Kyrie Irving. So, uh, you know, guys like Damian Lillard are really going to be fighting for a spot. Like I said, Clay Thompson could easily be left out. Uh, Lamarcus Aldridge is probably going to get left out just because he's kind of third on San Antonio's totem pole. Uh, you know, it, it could be a situation where Memphis doesn't have a single representative, uh, depending on how it kind of shakes out with the coaches voting. Uh, there's just so many really, really good guys, and, and Kobe of course, makes that situation a lot worse because he just bumps everybody down. Uh, the only guys who are really winners here, I think, from him going to the front court are, besides himself, because it's going to be easier for him to get in, uh, I think you know Westbrook, Harden, Chris Paul are all deserving, and they all should 
you know, not have to worry quite as much because one of them is going to start and the other two can kind of get in on the coach's, uh, the coach's ballot. So, you know, at least for those guys, life's a little bit easier. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's going to be the way it shakes out. You see Westbrook. I think you'll probably see Westbrook as the second starter because one of the other things, you talked about this with Blake Griffin, anecdotally, you know, like when I, because I'm, I'm trying to cover around the league, so do you, the Clippers, to me, are less popular than they were. Some of that is because Blake isn't really dunking on people as much as he used to. You know, he's playing in the regular season in a different way, which is, I think, a positive thing. I think that's showing a, a maturity to his to his game and understanding that, you know, his bounce isn't permanent, which is good, but it also makes you less popular in that setting. So I could see Chris Paul doing that, and, and Russ is amazing. I mean, I, I think it would be it would be fun to see him and Curry, who could have been teammates, start in the All Star game. Yeah, it, I think it's going to wind up being, from the fan vote perspective, I think it's going to wind up being a race between probably Harden and Westbrook, uh, just because Westbrook's been you know just absurd this season. Harden's probably taken a step back, but Harden had huge vote to, uh, total last year. I mean, way way up there. I think he was like fifth overall. He had more than a million votes. So that, you know, and he's probably influenced by, you know, the Houston-China you know China relationship, uh, which has sort of been well-established going back to Yao. So I don't know. I mean, I think that could be a pretty tight race. Uh, but I agree with you on the Clippers not being as popular this year. I think that influences Blake. I think that influences Chris. Uh, they also just haven't been as good, which is always going to be an issue because you're just not getting as much coverage. And just being down here in L.A., that's one been one of my biggest takeaways this season is just the massive media that covers the Lakers and the massive media that covers Kobe on sort of a blow-by-blow basis compared to what the Clippers get. Uh, I think the Clippers have some really strong beat writers, uh, but just if you're looking in terms of, like, total volume, just the number of people who are, like, at the games providing regular content, it's just a fraction of the Lakers. And, uh, I mean, I think you would assume that, but just to see it up close on a day-to-day basis is pretty crazy. And I think, you know, just that kind of saturation coverage – for the Lakers, you know, relative to the Clippers is the kind of thing that can hurt those guys when it comes time to all-star voting because they're just not uh, that daily storyline. You know, like Chris Paul was injured. Like how big of a headline was that on a day-to-day basis? Like were people holding their breath, uh, you know, about his rib injury like they were if, you know, Kobe happens to sit out at halftime of the game the other night? I mean, I don't know. You know, it's it's just not the same thing. So uh, I think that's one of the issues that that could come back to, to bite both those guys. And the resonance is, is really crazy. I mean, I remember when I, I lived in L.A. from 03 to 07, and I, I, I've i always been kind of intrigued by L.A. sports fans because they're a very different breed because there's so many transplants and there are so many there, – there are so many transplants and there are so many locals just because L.A. is so gigantic. And I my joke when I was in college was – how long is it? Gonna, how long would it take for the for the situation to be flipped for the Lakers car flags to turn to Clippers car flags? And the answer is a lot longer than I thought it was. And some of that is Kobe, of course, because Kobe is a guy who was around for such a long time that I think that there's a group of people that will do that. But their fans are so enthusiastic, and I think that even though their young core is is talented but hasn't really shown it yet, I think that. What I've seen from them is that they're more in that realm of like we're we're sticking with this team, and it's not helping matters for the Clippers that they haven't captured the imagination in the same way, especially in terms of playoff success. 
Totally, and, and I think the nostalgia factor is a big deal, too. It's just like walking around the city. I mean, you'll see, like, a Lamar Odom jersey. Like, at my local corner store, they got a Lamar Odom jersey, like, framed up, you know, for no real reason other than, you know, they he probably shopped there sometime. They convinced him to sign it. You know, you go back to all the Showtime guys. Everybody who was raised in L.A. is going to have really deep ties to the Lakers, and when you're as bad as the Clippers were for so many years, like, there's no way to just kind of quickly fix that because you, you just don't have the sort of ingrained fandom uh, that a team like the Lakers does in L.A. or a team like the Blazers does uh, in Portland or a team like the Warriors, uh, you know, in in the Bay Area. I mean, part of the reason why I think they're they're coming back so strongly is because even if they weren't always good, there was always an entertainment factor there that was able to kind of sustain the fan base, and they were good way back in the day. So you, you're able to kind of pull on that nostalgia to kind of get people back into it once uh, the team gets better. And I think that's why just the, the popularity locally, uh, you know, in San Francisco and Oakland is just off the charts right now is because it's not just like a, a Johnny-come-lately thing. It's like, hey, we're remembering back to 40 years ago when they won the title or, you know, some of these other, you know, super high-paced, high-scoring type teams from, you know, more recent past. So, I mean, that helps, and those are all things the Clippers just don't have. I agree with that, and something else that factors into that, which you also see with the Knicks, is that the Bay Area has never really had a dominant college basketball program. They've had teams at various moments. Stanford was good for a little bit. Cal was good when Jason Kidd was there. And so the Bay Area is very passionate about basketball. It's just a sport they like. You know, people there from various walks of life just enjoy it. It's a sport that, you know, that gets played on playgrounds and stuff like that. And that's true in L.A. too. And when you are the only game in town, which the Warriors are and the Lakers functionally were for 20 years because Donald Sterling didn't care about making his team good. You are a, a major locus of that interest. And that I think is something that's kind of hard to discount in, in this is that the Warriors are the team that you grew up watching if you were from here and you liked basketball because there weren't really other options. And that was in an era, let's say for people our age and older, who, if you watch basketball, you know, you'd have periodic national games, but you would have that, and then you'd have your local team. So if you were going to watch somebody, you watch the Warriors. And as you said, there was enough there. You know, maybe it wasn't your whole childhood because they sucked most of it, but they were good at moments, and that would stick with you. Like, there are people a little bit younger than I am who have that with the We Believe team. My generation has it with the run TMC. And so there are little batches that people a little bit older have it with the, with the Rick Barry teams. And so... They were good enough for a short enough period to instill fandom, and if you don't have any competitors, that's enough. Totally. Hey, this is completely unrelated, but I just thought of it. If Byron Scott was the coach of the Western Conference All-Star team, who would he start alongside Kobe Bryant? Like, And who would have to go to the bench? Like, Would he bench Curry and Durant just to set the show for Kobe Bryant? <laughs> well, I think, he would, I think he would definitely sit Westbrook. Because Westbrook's a guy who might not, even though Westbrook grew up, from what I remember, Westbrook grew up a Laker fan and probably a Kobe fan in particular. I think that he would he would try to to set it up that way. Uh, I, I and he'd probably have guys like Dirk and Duncan who probably who not only are you know are more closer to contemporaries for Byron, but would probably be more willing to defer. But. Yeah, the idea of Byron Scott doing that, that was like there was a, a funny hypothetical that uh, Matt Moore of Hardwood Proxism threw out yesterday of like, if you threw out the incentive that the team that beats the Warriors first gets an automatic playoff berth, and then I threw out the idea of, well, what happens if the Lakers get it? And then all these Laker fans were like, would that mean we lose our pick? And I just started laughing incessantly. <laughs> well, at least they have their priorities straight. 
I mean, what do you make of this this move with D'Angelo and, and Julius to the bench? Because, you know, I see it both ways. I mean, I, or at least I see the conversation both ways, which is like, one, you're stuck with Kobe, so it helps those guys. But then, two, it's a real slap in the face, and if you're those guys at that age, you're really having a hard time seeing the bigger picture. But, hey, they responded pretty well the other night in terms of, you know, their scoring output at least. I mean, that's something, and they got to play down the stretch. But, I mean, where do you stand on it? There, there are two basic truths for me with it. One is they should try to maximize the amount of time D'Angelo Russell, Julius Randle are playing together, and I would say Clarkson if you can, playing together without Kobe because you need to see what those guys can do, and when Kobe's on the floor, you're basically learning nothing because his defense is his defense and his offense, he's so ball dominant that you don't really get an accurate reflection of what the Lakers would look like with those guys. So that part of it, fully on board with. However, they should not be doing that and at the expense of playing them full minutes. Like, what you should do is you should say, like, okay, when Kobe's off the floor, these guys are on it, and you give them enough time with Kobe to get them to a competent amount of, of minutes. You know, so if they're getting to, let's say, 26, 28, they should not be playing 20 minutes a game because then you're not you're not getting it out of them, you're not testing them, you're not forcing them to grow. And the part that is super concerning to me, and that you can testify to this a little bit more because you're closer to it. But the way that Byron Scott has described his communication with those guys is horrifying. Well, you know who it reminds me of a little bit is uh, Nate McMillan, when he used to be the Blazers coach. Like some of these, you know, former players, there's a real pride to the idea that, like, look, my door's open. The guys can come talk to me if they want to, but I'm not going to be this babysitter who goes out of my way to, like, communicate uh, with my younger players because they need to learn the hard way. You know, I think in general, like, Nate's a pretty good guy. Like, yeah, he was, you know, it's fine with the media. He was usually pretty quiet, uh, you know, in terms of, like, keeping a lot of stuff to himself. But he's pretty old school. Uh, and that always, you know, rubbed me the wrong way because I was trying to put myself in, like, the situation. Like, if you're an 18-, 19-year-old kid, especially one with lots of hype and pressure, like, you know, especially D'Angelo Russell here, I think he's sort of the real flashpoint player. I mean, don't you want your coach to to feel like, it's a two-way street. Like it's not just you have to go to his office and and listen to the you know the verdict from him. I mean, shouldn't this be a conversation? And especially when you look around the league, like at the other you know most functional relationships between coach and point guards. I mean, it usually seems like it's a lot lighter in terms of mood and and how they carry on, a lot friendlier. And then it almost seems kind of combative with the Lakers. And it's strange. It's like you know Byron wants D'Angelo to pay or something like that. You know, that's not how it should be. Uh, so th- that part of it to me, it's just all wrong. And I think, I mean, that is really the number one reason why when I look forward to next year, it's just so hard to imagine Byron Scott being back because he was a decent idea as the guy who just kind of carries out Kobe's final chapter, right? Like you knew he was going to be this sort of enabling presence for Kobe all along. That that was like the one thing he could really sell uh, was that he was going to be able to kind of you know bring that uh, to its conclusion. But there's no way anyone in the Lakers management can really believe that Byron Scott is the best coach to kind of shepherd D'Angelo Russell towards superstardom. It just is not a fit at this point. I think it's been very clear uh, through all of his comments and his actions so far this season. And the same thing for Julius Russell. And I just don't see him as that guy at this point of his coaching career who is you know, the right personality to kind of make that happen. So uh, that's why I think you know, the clock is fully ticking. Uh, on his tenure, uh, and 
everything he does, just all these baffling comments and all these baffling rotation moves are just sort of, uh, you know, reaffirming that idea in my mind. I agree with you. I don't think they can really seriously consider bringing him back, but the Lakers are also in this really complicated situation because they have top three protection on their pick, which originally was sent to Phoenix as a part of the Steve Nash trade, but was later sent to Philadelphia as a part of the Michael Carter Williams Brandon Knight trade. And the problem with top three protection is that it's too narrow to really have it affect your behavior. Because even if you have the worst record, you still have a, a only a two and three chance of keeping the pick. And each time you drop, you drop like 10%. So it's not, so it, you have to be so bad to get that little a chance that most teams don't think it, it affects it. I don't think it's affecting the Lakers at all right now. I don't, honestly, I don't think they're tanking or anything like that. They're just not good. Well, this is the best case scenario for them. You know, it's like everybody talks about them. They're, they're relevant in a news sense, not in a basketball sense, which is really all they could kind of hope for. And they're just about as maximized to keeping their pick as they possibly can be, given what Philadelphia is doing, right? So, like, if you if you told me that this is the track they were going to be on, you know, in August, I would have said, hey, that's really what you can hope for. Other than you know, D'Angelo and and Julius not being featured enough, that's pretty much big picture the best case scenario because the last thing you wanted them to do was like you know have these veterans accidentally win a bunch of games and all of a sudden you know they're like the fourth worst team in the NBA and their pick is gone for good I mean you you definitely want to have a shot at that pick if you're them Uh, so uh, to me I think despite all the weirdness as long as they can continue to keep uh, turning over more and more responsibilities and minutes to Russell and Randall, I think they're doing okay. <laughs> you know, like it's a very weird, twisted version of okay, but I think it's okay. I wish they had used some of their resources towards getting towards buying more lottery tickets. Let's say, you know, getting guys like they had Robert Upshaw for a period of time on contracts. Because basically, what you're looking at with Roy Hibbert, let's say, is you have a guy who his goal was to make you semi decent. That obviously failed. I'm not surprised by that. I never expected them to be good, but whatever. And they just didn't have enough roster spots, I think, to push that. You you, you know, you never know where you're going to get that Robert Covington, and I understand what their pressure was. But what will be really interesting to me is, are they going to be able, or are they willing to pivot with Roy Hibbert and Lou Williams in particular to move those guys now that it's pretty clear that they're that they're not going to be relevant in this discussion, and those guys might potentially be assets for someone else. Well, you know, if I'm Mitch Kupchak, I say that you know, putting a guy like Lou Williams out there as a trade chip is a good way to kind of put your stamp on the team. You know, because right now the whole perception around them is like, okay, we're just just catering to Kobe. Uh, through this run, right? Well, the planning for what comes next really began as soon as he officially announced he was going to be done, right? Because they were kind of hamstrung by the, the slight possibility he'd try to come back again next year because you know they would have paid him the money to do it. I mean, they're just kind of you know that desperate at this point. But now that Kobe said that stuff, it's like, okay, all the roster planning, all the asset collection that you're mentioning, all the other possible you know, sell-off kind of stuff that you would normally do if you were this bad of a team – that all that all can happen now because Kobe's told you he's gone. You know, so you know what your pieces are going to look like to start next season, and you know what would uh, benefit them. You know, is Lou Williams that helpful uh, to you know, D'Angelo Russell's development if he needs the ball, if he really is you know a minus defender, 
if he's not going to be a perfect pairing alongside Russell in a backcourt combination. Like, that really doesn't make any sense at all. So that guy should totally be a trade chip as soon as possible. And, you know, you should basically take whatever you can get for him because he's not that helpful to whatever the next version of the Lakers looks like. So, that, you know, that's really how I think Mitch Kupchak should be thinking. Uh, and we'll see, you know, at the deadline if that's his mentality because there's really no more excuses for the front office. You know, that goes for him and, and Buss. I mean, once Kobe's out of there, uh, you know, they've got to get star power. You know, they've got to find a new face of the franchise. They've got to either build that from within or go out and find somebody in free agency. And, you know, Kobe's been a lot of things for a lot of people, but he's definitely been an easy excuse for those guys. Like, you can just, you know, the last couple of years, they can basically write off their summers because, oh, nobody wanted to come because of Kobe. And I think that was true. But that's no longer the case. They've got to have some sort of a meaningful impact summer uh, this year uh, to get this thing going in a better direction. I wish they had been more proactive before, but you're right that it really kicks into another gear now because the the excuses are gone. And you talked about the best-case scenario. And, yeah, if we're excluding the scenario that they were actually good, especially if they were good fueled by their young guys, you can make it. You can make a good argument that this is that this is on the road to the best one because, yeah, they do have a decent chance of retaining their pick. And, you know, you'll see little flashes. But the other thing that has been kind of lingering to me that I'm super intrigued by in the league in general is, broadly, the young guys are delivering right now. And that's so awesome for this league. Oh, my God, yeah. I mean, like, I just had to write about the very real possibility that Kristaps Porzingis is going to get voted in as an Eastern Conference all-star starter. And it's not like a, a Jeremy Lin fluke. It's it's like this guy has put together, uh, you know, pretty solid numbers for a rookie, and he's got this immense popularity straight out of the gate, faster than even his most, you know, optimistic fans would have guessed. You've got Carl Anthony Towns, who, if he played for the Lakers, can you imagine how loud the screaming would be about him not being in the fourth quarter? Like, if Sam Mitchell had to take Byron Scott's arrows, how much attention that would be getting? And I think it's already getting a lot in Minnesota, but you know, that's just a totally different animal. Uh, you know, Towns has been an amazing impact guy. Uh, but, yeah, I, I think you're right. And, you know, it's also how many of these guys around, you know, that 2003 draft class have we heard talking about how they kind of feel old or, like, they feel like they're kind of trying to cling to what was uh, once there, you know? Like, Dwayne Wade's kind of made a comment about that. Uh, you know, Le- LeBron's kind of hinted at, at that kind of a sentiment in his profile with Lee Jenkins. Like, the youth movement's totally on. You know, the Warriors sort of being, you know, the dominant team with a very young core, you know, relative to what we're usually expecting of guys peaking around 30. You know, these guys are like 27 uh, and so forth. So I think that's part of it. <clears throat> but then also just a lot of teams have been willing to say, look, if we draft the point guard and he's, you know, 21, 22, 23, we're going to let him learn on the fly and he'll be pretty good within a couple of years. Uh, and same thing with some of these wing scorers, and you know, all of a sudden you, you've got that kind of a situation. So I think it's great for the NBA. I mean, the the tension between like the old guard, which is now like that 2003 class, and the the next generation is very real this season. It, it does feel like a you know a transition year, not because uh, not not just because of the Warriors sort of kicking LeBron off the front page, which I think is a huge story. I mean, it's like the first time in five years LeBron hasn't been like the number one story, whatever he's doing. Uh, in the league. Uh, so I think that's part of the transition, but I think it filters down, uh, you know, all the way down to, you know, lottery teams who are being driven by 
uh, you know, twenty-year-old guys, and that's pretty—that's pretty good for the NBA. I mean, if you're Adam Silver, you're loving that. You, you, you really, really are. And I think that the team that bridges that gap is the Spurs because the Spurs have the older guys, but Kawhi Leonard is in the conversation. Like he—I don't think he's in the could win MVP conversation right now, but he's in the if we ex- if we pretended Stephen Curry was an alien and was ineligible for the MVP. He's in the conversation, and that is amazing for a guy who is primarily his best attribute is as a defender. Yeah, I had him third on my quarterly ballot. Where do you have him? Like I had, I went Curry, George, Kawhi, and this was like after basically like the twenty game mark. Curry, George, Kawhi, LeBron, and then Westbrook. I think I was lower on Westbrook than a lot of people, just because I didn't think that they would look great when Durant was out, uh, and I think. He's been, you know, just ridiculous. I mean, his numbers are insane. I just think sometimes a little too quick with some of his shot selection. Turnovers have been up this year a little bit, and their offense hasn't been, like, super smooth. So maybe those were reasons why I was kind of discounting him a little bit. But, yeah, I had Curry or I had uh, Kawhi third. I had him sixth, but that isn't – but I had basically everybody other than Curry as being insanely close, and Kawhi has moved up to me since that point. You know, our, we did ours about two weeks ago, so it was a little bit a little bit before your piece. And he's a wonderful player. I think the difference for me uh, with him – and this is, again, a difference between most valuable and best or most outstanding – is that he's asked to do less. So, like, you think for me, like, between him and, let's say, Paul George, like, Paul George pretty much has to be the alpha and the omega, otherwise the the Pacers aren't relevant, which is more paralleling LeBron right now. I mean, LeBron has Kevin Love, but part of the reason Kevin Love is doing so well is LeBron. And I think that Kawhi, while I think his level of play is comparable to Paul George and possibly even superior, being asked to do a little bit less makes him a little bit less valuable, but he's incredible. I mean, he's such, such a great player. And he is providing a value as a perimeter defender that you just don't see very often. And and he does it in a way, offensively, that while he could still get a a whole lot better passing the ball, distributing, you know, being a part of an offense, he can really be an overall difference maker in a way that we don't see guys do, especially not players under the age of 25. That's just crazy. You don't see you don't see twenty five year old stoppers. Totally, and we we don't think of Kawhi as like that you know lead scoring option guy like LeBron, where like you know he's solving all of the problems with his own offense. I mean that's not really who he is, but he sure solves a lot of problems for his team. You know, and like I mean, there's the start of their season could have gone a lot of different ways. I mean, clearly you got to give their coaching staff a lot of credit, uh, but one reason why I had him third. Uh, you know, was in recognition of their effort and sort of their their team defensive success, which has been basically off the charts. But like, I mean, all of their fundamental problems that they have, like, okay, how do we incorporate Aldridge? Uh, how do we continue to milk Duncan? How do we kind of cover up for Tony Parker slipping a little bit? Like, how do we fit Manu into a role where he's able to be really effective? Uh, you know, in, in a smaller, uh, you know, a smaller, more contained environment. How do we like cover up for Danny Green being streaky? Like the answer to basically every single one of those questions is like, well, Kawhi's awesome, so therefore those problems aren't that big of a deal. They're not critical uh, on a team that's trying to pull itself together here at the start of the season. Uh, so I was kind of giving him, uh, you know, invisible like you know credit for those like invisible values uh, that you would normally associate with a guy like LeBron, who, you know, how many different guys is he covering up for right now, all of their injuries, 
uh, and, you know, all these guys sort of being asked to take on different roles in Cleveland. And, of course, LeBron sort of was the steadying influence keeping them afloat. And I think, you know, Kawhi, there's a lot of that to him, too, in San Antonio right now. Uh, and their record, to me, is, is really, really, really impressive based on some of those issues, in particular the Aldridge one. I mean, I, I knew the Aldridge thing was going to eventually work out. Like, I, I wasn't as panicky as a lot of people uh, about that over the summer. But I did think it was going to take some time, and I don't think it's all the way there yet. But the fact that they've stacked this many victories already as they still try to figure it out, uh, to me, it's one of the best stories of the early season. It is, and you you think about how the teams that are right around them in the mix for the non-Warriors best team in the Western Conference had much more continuity, both in terms of specific individuals, but more in terms of integration. You know, they were putting in somebody who was far more complicated in their system than Oklahoma City and the Clippers were at all. You could argue that the Rockets just with Lawson, I mean, granted, we've seen how that's gone, but they had to do more, and yet they've been better, not only in terms of record, but just when you watch them, they're just way better than the other teams in that real in that mold. And yes, Oklahoma City beat them early in the year, and that's fine. Remember, we were talking about adjustments. Oklahoma City didn't really have to do that. And that's super impressive to me when the Spurs are the team most acknowledged to care substantially more about April than they do about November and December. Oh, totally. Well, one thing on that, uh, the continuity aspect for them, like even though they're new, and I couldn't believe this, but it took them like 21 games, I think, to have their starters play more minutes than any lineup had played for them in either of the last two seasons. It's incredible. Uh, you you, you put what, that in your piece and it blew my mind. It's ridiculous. And so, I mean, I think that's a big part of it too, is like we probably were underrating the Spurs uh, these last couple of years, even during their title year, just because they were so rarely all the way together. And that, you know, their magical 2014 playoff run was basically everybody finally got healthy with the exception uh, maybe of Parker. Uh, and that's, you know, that's when they really took off. And so Kawhi's early season injuries kind of sandbagged them a little bit the last couple of years, you know, in the general perception. And I think, you know, like you're saying, they always care about the end more than the beginning, but the fact that he's been healthy and a big impact guy early on and he hasn't really missed the, the long stretches like he did these last couple of years is a huge reason why that's kind of flipped this season. Okay, complicated abstract question. If you could, so if you could pick the roster of any team, but only you, you only get the players that are 25 and younger, let's say, let's assume that Minnesota is first. If you don't pick them first, I would be intrigued to find out why. But who else, who else for you is in that conversation? Like, were their young core is just really interesting to you? Man, that is a good question. Yeah, I think Minnesota has to be first just based off of Towns by himself. Like, I think, well, I guess AD is technically in, in that same That's category. That's true, so, yeah. So I guess. But I, I, guess think, the, I think, is AD, like, basically the only guy on that team that's under 25? Uh, that's, uh, that's good. Cause I think Norris Cole, I think Norris Cole's like 26. I think Pondexter, I mean, they might have, you know, like a, a fringe guy, but I don't think they have any other key players. Cause Eric Gordon's probably what, like 27 at this point. Well, here's another one I, I would throw in there. What about just based on sheer volume Orlando? Uh, because I mean, I'm not a huge fan of any one of their particular prospects, but they've just got so many under 25 guys who could all pan out in, in various ways. And I think, there's probably going to be a lot of valuable uh, trade pieces just coming out of there as they sift through who's going to be the real guys and who's not going to be. But I think that they've probably got to be in that under-25, like accumulated talent mix. 
But, yeah, to me, the, the Towns-Wiggins combination, I think we've talked about that before. I mean, I think that's the best sort of, like, homegrown pairing since Durant-Westbrook. Um, and, you know, Wiggins, I don't know if he's had the greatest season yet, but he, he's made progress for sure. And then Towns has just totally blown away my expectations for day one, and I think there's even more untapped potential there. Like, I think he's being held back a little bit uh, minutes-wise, uh, probably so that he doesn't hit the wall. I mean, they're probably concerned about that. Uh, but as the season plays out, I think you know the best is still yet to come for him. Uh, and when you put those two guys together, where you have two potential perennial All Stars, I think that's going to be number one. Past that, I mean, who else would you have in the mix besides a team like Orlando? Or would you have Orlando or no? Orlando's in the mix. I think the two other teams that I would consider heavily in the mix underneath Minnesota would be Milwaukee because of Jabari and Giannis. And they have a bunch of other, they're a team that has lower end lottery ticket guys like Tyler Ennis and all that. And then the other one is that's the kind of the sleeping giant in all this is Utah. Because Derek Favors is 24, Rudy Gobert, I believe, is 22, Exum, who isn't playing this year, is 20, I believe. Like, they're a team that their guys not only are really good, but they fit together well, and they're closer to being actually realized. Like, if you put. Rudy and Favors and Exum on a team together, it would be super easy to build around them. Yeah, Utah was the team that I was kind of like hyping all off season, and the Gobert injury is just killer because I see I feel like they were just kind of getting it together. Their schedule was starting to lighten up a little bit. They had a pretty rough release schedule, and then he goes out, and now it's like, well, we've got to scramble, and and depth was never really their big issue. You know, or their big strength, and so now it's just stretched even more. I mean, one thing with Utah to me, like, I mean, do you like their their wing tee when they go basically no point guard? Do you like that look? I like it considering their alternatives. I don't think that it's really sustainable as a, you know, like, it's, it's kind of like in a way the Draymond at center lineups, it, not that it's as good, but just in the way that if you want to run it for short spurts, it's fine because it's just such a crazy change of pace. But you're asking a lot of specific guys, particularly Gordon Hayward, and I think that's a little bit hard. But what they can do, which is really underappreciated, is that if Exum isn't the answer at point guard, they can throw so many resources at that hole. You know, they can they can because they have they have their trio at the four, at the front court spots, and they even have a couple of guys in depth. I'm not the biggest fan of Trey Lyles, but you know he's a guy. They have draft picks. They have a ton of cap space. And basically, if I were if I were Dennis Lindsay, what I would be doing right now is thinking about ways of just at power forward and at center, just like throwing a ton of assets. Yeah. So the reason why I was asking about the wing T is because you know it's different and it's unique and it's distinct. And I'm kind of in that camp that seems to be growing a little bit that says basically, you know, if you're going to beat a team like the Warriors, going small and trying to beat them at their own game probably isn't the way to do it. I mean, that's the same reason why I think San Antonio is still the biggest threat to Golden State because they they can go small if they need to, but they also have really good big looks that will kind of create some friction where, you know, Golden State might not be able to kind of just sit in the smaller lineup as much maybe as they want to. Uh, so I don't know if it's down the road how far it might be, but to me that idea that the Utah has where, you know, it's lots of length, uh, lots of versatility, a really strong interior core, and then maybe you add Exum into that mix as a ball handler down the road, you know, next year, sometime after that. I mean, to me, that's a really, really strong core and a team that could make a legitimate amount of noise as, you know, a, a contending type team, uh, not that, not that too, not too far deep into the future, 
just because it's so distinct and it's different and everybody else is going to have to adjust to them once those guys really hit their peak levels. So you know, that's one reason why I'm kind of high on Utah, maybe still bigger picture than currently. Uh, like I said, that Gobert injury is just not great. I think that what you're what you're right on, and I think is is an underlying point to all this is you see a lot of people do emulation, but the biggest truth is talent is what's going to beat the Warriors. You know, it's not going to necessarily be oh you have this set of guys, you have that set of guys. It's no, you're a really good team. And what the Jazz do is like the like the Grizzlies before them, but I think the Jazz have the potential to be more than what the Grizzlies were. Is that well, you know, they might not be perfect for every team, is that you're going to have to adapt to them to a point. And I think that Favors is a guy who, who let's say for whatever reason, they play Gobert off the floor. Then you slide Favors over to the five, big whoop. You're fine. Exactly, yeah. So it's, it's, the, it's the mix of, hey, we can go small and we can kind of, you know, play in the same sandbox as the Warriors. But at the same time, when they have their five best players out there, it, pre- it presents real friction uh, against, uh, Golden State's best five, and you know, I was thinking that same thought when I was watching Indiana Golden State the other night. It's like they wanted to play that small ball style, and I mean it was over so quickly. I mean, how quickly was that game basically decided? You know, if they had kept their starters in, they would have won by forty. You know, and or you know if they had gone to their small ball lineup, even you know they, it could have been even uglier. So yeah, I'm always of the camp that sort of what Curry was saying. Like if you want to go small, you better have the personnel to do it, and right now nobody does. And that's why I think you know some of these teams that are trying to zig a little bit are set up better long term. And also just for this season, I still think Utah is better than its record. Uh, you know, from the schedule standpoint, was was really rough early on. And I know that uh, like the people around that team mentioned that uh, when they came through LA, just you know how tricky it was to spend so much time on the road when they had so many guys who were kind of adapting to new roles and they were trying to get by without the point guard and. They're moving guys who were starters into the second unit, and just all the different things that you know Quinn Snyder had to do early for them to be you know ten and ten at this point, you know, and, and hopefully trending upward, especially once Gobert gets back. And I I still think that's a team that's really solidly in the playoff picture, uh, and probably a little bit overlooked by you know the general people uh, who maybe aren't following them on a night to night basis. Yeah, I th- I think that's a really a really great way to kind of characterize where this Jazz team is. And that was actually a way that I wanted to to talk about with this is I think it's a little bit early also the Warriors are being so dominant. I think this isn't when we talk about the title. And obviously when we're talking about the playoffs, we're not being definitive because anything can happen. We're a little over 20 games in and, you know, an injury can sidetrack you and knock you out and you could be out by by the All-Star game. But assuming a relative a moderate level of a reasonable level of health for teams. Let's start with the West. What teams do you feel comfortable with the idea that they're going to be playoff teams? Well, it's it's pretty funny because we had all this like really early on. You know, it's a very typical like overreaction of you know, you know who's the big surprises, who are the big disappointments. But then you know the top five, with the exception of Houston right now, if you look at you know the records. Like the top five is basically who we thought it was. You know, Golden State, San Antonio, Oklahoma City, the Clippers, uh, and then you know not Houston, but Memphis is in there. And then after you know Dallas is you know really completely shocking start to me. They've come back a little bit, and Houston I think is slowly seeming like James Harden decides he wants to be a good player again, and they're making a little bit of noise and they're back into the playoff picture. So when I look at the eight teams that are currently in the playoff mix, the only one that's really all that surprising to me would be uh, Dallas. I just pegged them wrong before the season. Uh, I think they've got 
pretty good staying power, um, all things considered. And when I look at the teams that aren't in the playoff mix right now, uh, I've never really been in love with Phoenix. Uh, I think there's going to be changes coming there with, with Marquise Morris and, and maybe more than that. I guess we'll see. And then past that, as much as I like Minnesota, I don't really see them sticking around for the long haul. Ditto with Portland. And I think, you know, Denver, you know, they're, they're headed down, not up. Sacramento, I think, is one team that might have a little bit of upside that they haven't quite gotten to yet just because of the Cousins' absences. I mean, they're just such a different team when he's not out there. Uh, and also, their offense at times looks great and then at other times looks just totally inept. Can they find a, a better consistency there? Uh, if so, I think that they could be a team that's got some upside. I think New Orleans is dead in the water, and obviously the Lakers are the Lakers. So even though it's been kind of this parody-driven start, I'm struggling at this point to kind of see who is going to make the big move into the playoff picture from those teams that are outside. Yeah, the way that I'd, I'd group it right now is the teams that I'm confident in are the Warriors, Spurs, Thunders, Clippers, and then I would say the Jazz are kind of the weak link of that group, but I still have them in that group for right now. I think that they'll be good enough to, you know, stick it, and then as long as they stay healthy once Rudy gets back, they'll be okay. Then I feel better but not definite with the Rockets, Grizzlies, and Mavericks because the Mavs, I mean, they are a little bit under-talented, but Rick Carlisle's an amazing coach. I felt, I didn't feel comfortable saying they weren't going to, like, I picked them not to make the playoffs because I think Carlisle's good enough to make that difference. Just like I think Stan Van might be, but I think Carlisle's more definitely in that group. And then, for me, if I were to pick the two teams that are not in the playoffs right now that are going to be in, I would say the Kings and the Pelicans in that order. And the reason for that is that there are reasons to believe that their start is not representative, that they can be better than they've been. I agree with you that for the Pelicans in particular, it is a very hard road to hoe. I think that they're going to have to be so good the rest of the way. But I think they have the potential to be. So, the, you know, they're in, the, they're in that, like, not confident, far from confident, but possible. And the Kings... Where my my instinct with them at the beginning of the year, and I, I stand by it now, not because it was what I thought then, but because I think the reasoning is sound, is that I think they're in the nine spot. And what I mean by that is they're the ninth best team in the West, but assuming somebody falls off, I think they'll be there to be like a kind of a weirdly disappointing like 43-44 win playoff team. I think they can totally do that. Yeah, for sure. So tell me a little bit on the Pelicans. Uh, maybe I am overreacting to sort of what their vibe was like when they came through L.A. A.D. got that that weird uh, situation with Chris Paul, you know, where everybody was talking about, is it a basketball play, is it not a basketball play? And so then there was a little concern about his status going forward. He wound up being okay. But <clears throat> to me, just the vibe around that team was kind of yikesy. It was like, well, they already feel like, and this is just my own personal interpretation, it just kind of seemed like they already realized the writing was on the wall for them, like they had dug the hole too deep that they didn't have enough talent coming back, even when they were going to be all healthy to kind of make this Herculean run up the standings. I just didn't sense a, a real collective confidence about that group, if that makes sense. I think that's fair. I think that I could. I haven't seen them. I, it, I haven't seen that conveyed in person with me because they played the Warriors so early. I mean, they, the home game against them was the first night of the year. And yeah, they got they got blown out, but that you know everybody does that against the Warriors. But for me, what it is is that I think this is a team that if they stay remotely healthy, they have the talent to go, let's say eight and two in a ten game stretch. I'm not saying it's going to be the next ten, 
And with the way that the kind of the bottom of the West, the top of the the, the the top of the bottom and then the bottom of the top is working out, that might get them into the mix. And so let's say they're sitting there, let's say January 20th, and they're five, four or five games out. Then they're sitting there going, okay, you know, like we can, that's not, then I think they can be there. But also for that team, they have an MVP candidate. I think that, that there's somebody who, when they're playing all right, I think they should be able to beat the bottom of the West and the bottom of the East and maybe even the the kind of the non-playoff teams in the East. They should be able to kind of rattle off some of those wins. And I haven't looked at their schedule specifically with this concept in mind. But, I mean, they were a 45-win team last year. They had some injury. They had some bad injury luck last year, too. I mean, you can kind of feel with this team like they always will. But... When a team is shaky like that to me this early and they have talent, winning is something that can cure that. And I have, I'm have i not saying it will. I'm saying it could. Yeah, for sure. I mean, a couple of things. I mean, I think they have the hardest strength in the league so far, uh, at least by one measure. So that's uh, that's one reason why it might, you know, they might be able to do that eight and two kind of run you're talking about once it, that evens out a little bit. And I also don't think Anthony Davis has really been anything better than, what, a B or a B minus so far this season by his standard. So, I mean, clearly I think there's still some untapped potential from him individually. Uh, I don't know. I mean, one thing that I've noticed with teams, like when they do have the recurring injuries, like there's that mental aspect. And maybe this is like, you know, Blazers hangover, but there's always that one year where like you have the amazing push up the standings, everything comes together, you gut it out, it's great. And then the next year, or maybe it's two years later or whatever, trying to go back to that same well and overcome the injuries, uh, it just gets to be too draining mentally, and then at some point you just break, right? It's just sort of like, well, we need to change this mix up. We need to get some new talent in here. We need to get some fresh faces because these same old guys being injured over and over again, uh, it's just too much It's too much to ask, you know? And I don't know if the Pelicans have hit that yet, uh, but I wouldn't be surprised uh, if that's what ends up being the story of their season. And this is mostly, like I said, colored based on just sort of my feeling around their locker room after that game, uh, which wasn't the best game for them and clearly was kind of extraordinary circumstances with AD in in particular. But uh, uh, that's just kind of my vibe with them right now. I'll give you a stretch that might be it. And obviously I'm not saying this is definite, but okay. So on on December 14th, so middle of next week, early next week, they play at Portland, then at Utah, at Phoenix, at Denver. Let's say they go 3-1 and one in that stretch. I think that's possible. It's not definite. Then they come home for Portland, at Miami, home against the Rockets. And then at Orlando, and then they host the Clippers on New Year's Eve. Like, if they go, let's say, 7-3 and three in that stretch. And that's, you know, those are all hard teams. There's not, it's not like there's anything easy, really, in there, other than maybe Denver, if Denver's, you know, kind of in the level where we think they're going to be. If they can do well in that stretch, I think they can be sitting there going, okay, we're in this. And then they have, at the beginning of the year, they have Dallas twice, which is crazy. They hit, which is, I mean, you think about, like, why would New Orleans and Dallas have kind of a home-and-home, home, but whatever. And they have kind of games like that, and then they get a little bit more of, like, the Lakers and the Wolves and all that. So, yeah, I think that that leads into an interesting thing with Minnesota because they're on the outside looking in right now, which I think is the most likely outcome. But one thing that having watched them a fair amount because I'm so intrigued by Carl Anthony Towns, who I think is already the best player on this team, is that they haven't been playing over their heads. This is a team I think that could be better than they've been. Some of that is minutes usage and things like that, which might not be corrected. But it would not be the most shocking thing for for me to see them 
banging on the door close to the end of the season? I think that they're the single biggest beneficiary of the West middle kind of being softer, you know, because I think if this was one of those years where like the eight teams took off right off the bat and they were all way above 500 already, then a team like Minnesota would be inclined to say, well, we're not there yet, but it looks pretty tempting right now. Like, you know, 500 doesn't seem impossible for them. Uh, especially with, you know, Rubio at least being on the court for most of the season so far. Uh, They weren't that far uh, off a 500 pace with him last year when he was actually on the court. If you look at, like, net rating and all that, like, they were pretty decent with him. So if he stays healthy, I think they're in that mix. In terms of Towns, do you think that uh, he gets to the All-Star game before Wiggins, or does Wiggins beat him to the All-Star game? Or do they do it together? Oof. I I think that... I think Towns is going to deserve it first, but the big men, as we talked about earlier, the big men spots are so competitive, and Wiggins is very highlight friendly. You know, Towns is the type of guy that you'll have to tell your friends about and force them to like basically watch a couple games and they'll get it. Whereas Wiggins, they'll they'll just know. You know, like Wiggins, he because he has the dunks and he he's a good defender. Like you can see, it's he's a little bit more obvious. I think Towns is a better player. I think he will be a better player, and. But at the same time, I don't think either of them is going to get in by the fan vote anytime soon. You know, like you think about how stacked that crop is right now, unless they really change the format, I think it's going to take something. So I'm going to say Towns makes it next year, Wiggins makes it the year after. Wow. Well, I would love to see that. I mean, if he's an all-star already next year, that's... I think think he might deserve it this year. Really? Yeah, I was looking at that. I think that they're both just sort of you know, at the mercy of such uh, such a deep crop this year. But I could see Towns sneaking in next year. I mean, the leap, you know, like the equivalent leap that Davis made at the same age, uh, you know, if Towns makes anything like that, he's going to be in the mix. Uh, to me, Wiggins, yeah, I just really – he's the one player in the league where I wish his advanced numbers reflected what kind of like my hopes for him, you know, because it's just so hard to take his candidacy seriously for all-star when he basically flunks most of the major advanced stats, you know, like I think it's like, you know, inefficient scoring and getting the free throw line is basically what he's doing. And he's, and he's a, you know, solid defender for his position, uh, you know, past that, like all the things that I've loved about him for, you know, basically watching him since he was in high school, he just hasn't, you know, he hasn't found a way to be that, that all-around productive force quite yet. That's true. Uh, and it's still very early, but uh, yeah, maybe he'll get there. I think he will, and he also has the benefit of kind of being the perimeter guy on that team. I mean, Rubio, I don't think, is ever really going to get all-star consideration unless they, right right now, I would say the biggest kind of hurdle for them is, is that it's going to be harder for them to get that other guy than it was going to be before, because I think we, I expected them to just do what you what, what we talked about before, being like, oh, well, it's just not our year, settle into like the six to eight range and just you know, hope you maybe you're not going to get the, you're probably not going to get Ben Simmons or maybe Scal, but getting another, another dude, like another starter caliber player. And, you know, if they're in the, let's say if they're in the 10 range, that's going to be a little bit harder. And something else with them, I just had a piece that came out for the sporting news. And this is something to think about with Minnesota is their pick is protected to 12, which is very unusual. So what that means is if they have the 13th best record, so they can miss the playoffs barely and lose their pick. I think that could linger in depending on where they go. 
Yeah, I to me, I would uh, I'd want that pick when you. I mean, so would I. Yeah, I mean, I would take a playoff berth over it. You know, like if if they if that's the theoretically the choice, quote unquote, is if they can do that. But other than that, like if you're if you're sitting there, like the the clearest recent example of this is Miami. Like if you're just a little bit off, then just go push it down and make sure that you keep it, and that's fine. Totally. There's no shame in that. Yeah, I think so. I think it sounds like the teams that we think have the most upside right now, based on relative to where they are currently in the standings in the West, would be what New Orleans, Sacramento, and Minnesota. Sure, and I mean, I'm just less confident in Phoenix because while Eric Bledsoe is wonderful, I, I really like him. I think he's an underappreciated player in this league, and I'm still thinking about the idea of him going to the Jazz after we talked about that like two months ago. <laughs> is is that I, I just don't see with them, you know, like we talked about the idea of New Orleans rattling off like a seven three eight two run. I just don't see the Suns doing that. I mean, maybe if everyone was healthy at the same time and they had a relatively light schedule, but their their offense isn't consistent enough, their defense isn't consistent enough, and, you know, they're, that, they're, they're in a place where that's not a problem, but I find it easier to see Sacramento and teams like that going on because what you're looking at with, with a group like this in the West is, so, the way that a team gets through is by blowing up, by having a really, you know, like winning 20 out of 30, winning something like that. And so for me, I think about what teams are most likely to have that aberration. Totally. Yeah, I think we're we're on the same page as uh, I, I don't see a ton of upside from Phoenix. Okay, same conversation, Eastern Conference. What teams are you comfortable, let's start there, what teams are you comfortable saying they're going to be in the playoffs? I mean, right now this is like the most, complicated question I think there is in the league I mean just the the level of you know compactness in the standings is insane uh and the the number the quantity of teams that have shown promise to me like you know one of the most outspoken eastern competitors in recent memory has been mind-blowing you know I, I don't really see this coming so I, you know I expected some of these teams to be better I think really good health across the board for the east has been a big factor but still, I mean, even the teams that we thought would be, you know, slightly better or take a step forward, in some cases have taken big steps forward. I think Cleveland's by far in its own tier. I'm pretty confident in liking what I see from the Raptors. Uh, I'm not sure how what, how that translates to a deep playoff run or not, uh, but I think that they're definitely, you know, in that second tier. I would tend to default on the body of work going back to last year and keep Atlanta in that mix. I also think Boston is probably the team that is, you know, its record doesn't quite reflect how good it is. I still think Boston's got some some upside, you know, relative to its record. Uh, I know the point differential is really, you know, strongly in favor of that argument. And those are probably the teams I'm most comfortable. I mean, not- noticeably absent from that would be Chicago. I don't know. Do they have an identity? I guess that's kind of my question with the Bulls right now. It just seems like they've got multiple teams within the same roster kind of thing. And maybe they're, you know, trades or free agent moves away from really figuring out how they want to play under Hoiberg. So I guess if there's any team that I maybe I've soured on compared to the the start of the year, it's it's probably the Bulls. So, and I'm still kind of dubious and skeptical of the Heat just in general based on track records with, you know, Wade's health and all that. So that's kind of how I see the East. It's not a super long list of teams that I would say are definitely in. Yeah, mine is similar. I'll I'll explain it a little bit differently. So for me, I have two different classes in this. I have the teams that I'm comfortable with and then the teams that I could be easily convinced into being comfortable with if they show me a little bit more. So the list that I'm comfortable with is small. It's the Cavs, the Raptors, the Hawks, the Celtics, and the Pacers. 
And the reason why the Celtics and Pacers make it on is that they've done well with absences. I mean, George Hill missed some time, and the Celtics are the Black Knight. I mean, they you could just cut different pieces off of what they're doing, and they'd still succeed. It's insane. Like, Marcus Smart, I thought, was such a key part of it, and they've been fine. I mean, they haven't been perfect. They haven't been, but they've been they've done well enough. So you have those teams that I feel like, you know, even if they get befallen by something other than catastrophe, they'll be good enough to be in. That doesn't mean they're going to get the top five seeds. That just means I think they'll be in the dance. Then the next group of teams that I could be easily convinced is a really weird collection. And it's Charlotte, Miami, and Chicago. And the reason for that is that all those teams have played well. Like, I can see how they can make the playoffs. But there are reasons to be hesitant. And the team that is maybe the most interesting with that is Charlotte. Because Charlotte, my thought was always, oh, well, how are they going to withstand injury? And Al Jefferson has been out. They've won their last three games. They've won eight out of their last ten. They're really well coached. Their offense is maybe not replicable for the whole season, but they're they're banking up wins. They're doing well. And then Chicago, I think, just has more talent, and Miami I, Miami has a lot of talent too. So I would say that. But so but the reason that you can't have it is that's eight teams, and then the next group down is basically the entire rest of the Eastern Conference, other than Brooklyn and the Sixers, where it's like, yeah, I could see any of those teams getting in. Yeah, I think I'm still skeptical of the of the Knicks, but I could see Detroit, Washington, Milwaukee, or Orlando. I think all those would be would be uh, would be possibilities. I just something about the Knicks I still don't trust. I was oh, for sure, they're they're def- well because their defense is just built to regress. I mean, it, they had they they had a lot of I I, I talked about it a little bit with Nate last week that they are they're they at before i think it was on sunday opponents were shooting 30% from 3 on them which is completely unsustainable it's now up to i think like 31 or something like that because the jazz and whoever they played the other game they played after that just like drained threes on them and their rebounding is great like they have a lot of regression factors i also think that the Knicks do not need to be great this year they're a team that while they don't have their pick you know they would be satisfied if they finished like 35 wins that would be fine with that and the weirdest team for me is the magic because the magic have played a lot of the most entertaining games of this year they are the experts in the current nba of blowing games late like this is a team that there are at least five games that they've lost that they could or maybe should have won and that's insane because they're 12 and 10 and they're not on a talent level i don't think they're at the level of the teams above them yeah, I know. I got to see it firsthand against the Clippers, uh, and it was it was shocking. But the funny part was, I was sitting next to the Magic beat guys, and you know, without kind of calling them out by name, I mean, they were all completely prepared for it. Like they knew it was going to happen before it happened. It was almost like it, it was a movie that they had seen previously, and they were going to like tell me each of the plot points. Like, here's what's going to happen: their offense is going to fall apart. They're not going to be able to stop Griffin. Crawford's going to be able to get whatever shot he wants, and then all of a sudden, like, game's over. It's a 17-2 run, and the Clippers, who had, like, zero energy whatsoever, walk out with a, a pretty comfortable win. So, yeah, no, it's tough. I mean, I like I said, I, I kind of like them just based on the sheer volume aspect. Like, clearly they're trying to figure things out with the Oladipo going to the bench, you know, Fournier kind of becoming this guy for them that maybe I didn't see happening before the season. Uh, and just kind of sharing the load, you know, a little bit more evenly than maybe they did in previous years. Uh, I mean, clearly the effort is there in general. Uh, you know, if you've got that kind of a record and, you know, you're, you're in games late before you blow them, 
so that speaks well of Skiles' sort of you know adjustment process. I mean, I think even despite all of those late game struggles, like they're still overachieving. So I mean, I think they're probably pretty happy with where they are, and they're probably going to be committed to you know running this thing all the way as far as they can take it. Because I think a, a playoff berth for that franchise would mean more than just about any other team, uh, you know, in that Eastern Conference middle. I guess you can make the same argument for Detroit too, but like I could just see Orlando just gunning all out for that eight seed just so they have the the PR win after a pretty rough you know rough and rocky what three year stretch now. Yeah, except the Sixers, but they don't really count because they're not going to. <laughs> yeah. Well, Can you imagine that? Like if all of a sudden they're just like they're just in the mix and just all of these all of these people are coming out of the woodwork. Just I mean, it's never going to happen, but that would be amazing. Yeah, that would be. Well, so Orlando, Orlando's a good team to talk about this with. Like, I think that I understand what they're doing. I also think that, especially with how well they're playing, they should be listening and maybe engaging a little bit on trying to coalesce into some better assets. Because Tobias Harris, solid player, like him, but I don't think he's a key player on their team. So if you find somebody who just loves him, you know, that, that sees a place for him, let's say maybe a team a higher, a little bit higher on the Eastern totem pole, let's say, I think you have to listen. I think that he's, he's the type of guy that you do that. Like, let's say conceptually, let's say like Toronto is like, Hey, that guy would be a great fit for us. He could play with Damari Carroll. You can kind of bounce them between the three and the four. Then, you know, Toronto, if Toronto has the right assets, you listen. And, I'm going to be really intrigued to see whether they do that because that feels like what Masai will do, and there are not what what Masai would do is be interested in something like that. But if you're Orlando, you're in a really nice spot because you can you can play this position of authority, which is basically that we don't need to do anything, but if another team's going to make a mistake, we'll be okay. Yeah, for sure. I, I think they're ripe for consolidation. It just it's a matter of timing. I mean, I could see that happening next summer. Like I could see them just saying, "Look, like this mix is it's competitive. We're scrappy. Let's let's run it out this season, see how far they can take it, and then kind of consolidate next summer." But yeah, totally. Oh, by the way, speaking of their late game meltdowns, did you see their uh, ATL play last night where Peyton lost the ball, went into the backcourt? Yes, it was amazing. That was one of the funniest things of the entire season. I was laughing so hard. Like they come out of a timeout, and <laughs> the first thing he does is dribble over the back, the midline. Like, they're they're on, in, they're innovating new ways to lose. Like this is a team that they're like they're like saboteur professionals, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean th- those types of things when your team is full of twenty two year olds, that's fine. The fact that they're in these games against good teams and then sabotaging themselves is far more important than being just beaten out of these games one of the funniest things i've seen since remember when brett brown kicked that ball and got a technical foul late in a close game when they were trying to like yeah trying to get their and that was like the funniest thing since that well (laughs) are are we putting are we putting that in the same tier as matt barnes because that matt the matt barnes play was one of maybe my 10 favorite plays of the last five ten years yeah so i was arguing you're talking about the half court shot right the half court shot with five seconds left and they had a yeah, timeout, so and they were down one. I was arguing exactly how bad was that in terms of, like, when he decided to pick it up. Because, one, it was kind of a scramble play. Two, he did have a clean look. Granted, it was from, like, 60 feet. But he did have, like, a slightly open window there to launch it. And then uh, Jaeger was trying to call timeout, too, right? I believe so. 
Yeah, I, so I think I think Jaeger was like trying to call a timeout, which was the funniest part about it. Because can you imagine if they had done uh, like in the NFL or college football when they give you the timeout like after the kicker's already kicked the the field goal, so it goes through and like you know you ice him or whatever. Like imagine if Jaeger had iced Matt Barnes on that shot. Like yeah, that would have been so. Uh, so, uh, I, I mean, in a lot of ways, you're right that he might not have gotten a cleaner look because the they Detroit had guys down there. It wasn't like he was uncovered. They had guys down there, and I think they were anticipating that if they were going to shoot, it was going to be like a pull up from the top of the key or something like that. And that isn't what happened. And <laughs> yeah. and something else with this uh, is that players practice maybe not that specific craziness. But they practice half-court shots and things like that more than people know. And, like, this is something you can speak to as well because you cover the league. It's like one of the ones that stuck with me is Stephen Curry has now made it kind of a regular part of his warm-up to shoot from the center court logo. Not from center court, but from the logo, which extends beyond center court. And he makes, from when I've seen it, he makes about mm, 35 40% of those. And so it's like, and Sheed, I remember I heard stories about Rashid Wallace, who just making half court shots all the time. So it's not like this is something that those guys never do. Totally. And the Matt Barnes thing was also just kind of an out of body experience. Like he was like operating on one plane and like the rest of the world was like on a completely different plane. Like he knew exactly what he was planning to do. It was pretty funny. Uh, no, that was uh, that was a pretty amazing ending. Uh, so uh, I, I think would be fun fun for you and for us, because we're both people who watch a lot of basketball, is... What teams, let's exclude the Warriors because I think that's just kind of a given. What teams are you enjoying watching the most this year? Oh, that's a really good question. I would say not on pure aesthetic value, but just in terms of intrigue, I'd say the Thunder are still really high on my list, um, especially now that KD's back. I wasn't having so much fun when uh, KD was out. But, like, there's so many weird subplots with the Thunder of, like, how many of their – supporting cast guys can just be completely useless on any given night. And then you've got Westbrook just playing out of his mind. I think, like, his, when I looked it up, like, his points, rebounds, assists numbers hadn't been matched for a season since Oscar Robertson in, like, 1965. So he's basically completely under Curry's radar and, you know, playing the best basketball of his career. You've got KD playing pretty efficiently and, and scoring and, and doing all the things that we've known. You know, even a nice defensive stop the other night on that uh, that play against uh, the Kings where, you know, he never really gets credit for his defense, but he's, you know, he's always doing smart things and he's always, you know, well positioned and just a general overall fun guy to watch. But then some of their supporting guys have just been, like, ridiculous. Like, I hate to pick on him, but, like, Kyle Singler, I mean, he still hasn't had an assist all year. That's like almost unbelievable. Wait, what? Yeah, Are you know, serious? Well, let me let me triple check this. But last I, night, I, I trust you. I mean, you're an Oregon guy. I've... Yeah. So Kyle Singler was like, this is a guy I've been watching since he was in high school at Medford, which yeah. is like the so middle was... of nowhere. Uh, and you know, he was one of this all-around blue chip guy, Duke, uh, you know, most outstanding player in the NCAA tournament. And he has played 203 minutes this season, and he has registered zero assists and 13 turnovers. He's shooting 24% from the field. And so basically he is the leg shackle on Russell Westbrook's ankle is basically what he is. It's just so bizarre. And, oh, by the way, Oklahoma City's got him locked up for a five-year contract. <laughs> yeah. And, and what's crazy is when he was when he was a freshman in college, like, and I watched him in high school and college too because he was originally going to be a UCLA recruit, and then that's a story that I will make me angry for the rest of my life. But – 
he, uh, I always thought of him as a really good passer. Like I thought of him as a guy who had court vision, he was willing, and then now he has zero assists. So he's he's got very, I mean, he's a high IQ player. That's who he's been. Uh, unselfish. You know, he's not a chucker in the slightest. Complimentary guy. So obviously he's not going to have the ball in his hands a lot. But he, he knows if guys are making cuts, he's going to be able to find them. And I think part of it is that there's a lot of standing around still going on in Oklahoma City. Guys off the ball, you know, that's part of it. I think also he's way down their totem pole. So, you know, a lot of times maybe he's in units where they're trying to force feed Canner or, they're, you know, they're trying to get other guys going or, or maybe Waiters is just pounding. Uh, and so he's just kind of a forgotten piece. I think that's a big part of it. So we got to kind of put the situation into context. But, I mean, the rest of his numbers are atrocious too. I mean, I think he's been one of the worst players in the league this season, and it's kind of out of nowhere. Like I, when when they got him last year, I thought, hey, that's a nice pickup. He could be this like you know classic complimentary guy, sort of how they played Karan Butler a little bit, you know, like just kind of not you know the fifth guy basically. Like I thought, you know, the Matt Barnes role for the Clippers, that that same kind of thing. Maybe not as good at it, but you know, competent. And he really just hasn't been that for them. Uh, so. Now I'm just bashing him, and so you can kind of get a sense for what I like to watch. You know, I'm, I'm kind of a masochist, but uh, and certainly they're on my list. Uh, You're talking to a guy who watches a lot of the Sixers, so I understand. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, here, I'll, 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 take, I'll take the mantle for a little bit and tell some of the ones. So I have there are a series of teams that I have right now where I have a hard rule where I only watch them when a specific player is on the floor. Otherwise, I do not watch them at all. Like and those three teams are the Kings with DeMarcus Cousins, the Knicks with Porzingis, and the and the Pacers with Paul George. Those three yeah, I, teams, I, I watch a lot of them when those guys are in, and when they are not in, I do not care. I've I've been watching a lot of Kings games actually, uh, surprisingly, with and without Cousins, and yeah, the it, the difference is incredibly stark. And it's so funny how much attention Rondo gets on Twitter. Uh, I mean, that guy is like the most one of the most tweeted about players in the entire NBA. And I think he's been a lot better than I thought he was going to be. But at the same time, like, it's so clear who the real driver of their success is. And I feel like even Cousins gets overlooked on his own team sometimes, which is maybe unfortunate. Porzingis has been amazing. I would put the Raptors kind of in that, that, that class, too. I mean, Kyle Lowry is, you know, he's not Steph, he's not Westbrook, but he's a pretty good show on a night-to-night basis uh, for them. Uh, and I and I like how their pickups have kind of fit in for them. I mean, it was a big question mark, like how are all these new pieces going to kind of come together? Skull is giving them great minutes. You know, I know we talked about Corey Joseph over the summer. Like he's been excellent for them uh, early going. So they're definitely on my list. And they that hasn't always been the case. You know, DeMar tends to take away from the aesthetic value for me uh, a lot of what they're doing, but they've been managing that pretty well. Um, uh, you want you want to hear a Corey Joseph stat? Oh, let's hear it. So I think it was on Sunday when, when we were doing 30 and 60, Corey Joseph was the number five isolation score in points per possession in the league. That's ridiculous. And like his, his defensive impact numbers are amazing too. You know? Yeah. So I, that was just, that was a really savvy case of like fit need uh, for that squad. And then on top of it, just being the hometown angle, just to really drive it home for like the fan base. But yeah, that is looking like one of the summer's better uh, better moves. And I think there was a little – there were some questions about that, weren't in, t- in terms of, like, his size of his contract and stuff. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, because yeah. his, his big issue is he's a point guard whose best ability is not running an offense. And that there's, there's always a, a skepticism with that, especially because there are very few players in the league that can do that on a second unit that do not 
that are not shorter than 6'3". You know, I, there just aren't that many guys because the guys who do that start. And so that was a concern, but they can kind of do it through system. The other one that I think will surprise people is that I've deliberately not watched much of the Cavs. And the reason for that is that there is very little probative about what they're doing right now. You know, obviously there are things with their defense, and it's not like I don't watch them at all. I still do watch them. But, like, once they get Kyrie and Shumper back, they will probably be the team other than the Warriors that I watch the most. So right at the beginning of the season, I was watching them a lot because I felt like Love was really getting to show off some of his passing and, and whatnot. Like, he was just, you know, way more involved and. Uh, I mean, that guy's an unbelievable passer, so that, that's fun to watch. Uh, I think at some point, and I don't know if this actually is borne out by the numbers, it might just be my perception, but I feel like it's just more and more like the LeBron slog uh, lately. Uh, the, the game against the Pelicans where it's just like tough layup after tough layup after tough layup down the stretch in fourth quarter, and then eventually they, they can't get it done in overtime. Uh, I mean, that was fun to watch from a an appreciation of LeBron's standpoint, but also, it just was like, can we please hit the fast forward button so Kyrie's back, so that this doesn't have to be one on five, you know, sledgehammer uh, offense every single night. Can and we just back can, the, oh, go ahead? I was gonna say going. Well, I want to go back to the Kings uh, and okay. the Raptors real quick. So this is another masochistic idea. Is there any worse summer that the Lakers could have than maxing Rondo and DeRozan? Well, I mean, I guess they could max Robert Sacre. <laughs> okay, but, okay. But, but, Is there any reasonable <laughs> – because that could happen, right? Like, they'll have two max slots unless I'm wrong. Yeah, they they will. That's And it's also crazy because you bring up the Kings, and it's like, yeah, again, my whole thing about how they should trade everything for DeMarcus Cousins is still there. I mean, it's that that's still just kind of lingering in the background, that they should trade every single asset they have for DeMarcus Cousins is still the truth. But, yeah, I, I think that Rondo is – he's one of those players where he's – really hard to to put into a box because his counting stats are amazing he gets he gets like these triple doubles that are par- partially positive but a lot of it is just kind of just because it's arbitrary endpoints you know if for whatever reason what switched it to double digits was 8 or 12 then all of a sudden it wouldn't matter as much but he still is playing pretty well so it's not like it's not like these are just hollow numbers he's playing all right and DeRozan just infuriates me. We, we I, I think that he does certain things that are really good, and that is what bothers me more. If a guy is just garbage, then it doesn't bother me as much because then all they could be is garbage. DeMar, DeMar DeRozan has a lot of talent. He's a natural passer. He has some nice athleticism, but he is so happy shooting bad shots, and he should not be happy shooting bad shots. Well, I could just see the Lakers just racing to throw money at him. I mean, there's the hometown angle. There's the, like, we have a giant hole at the two angle. There's the, like, well, you know, D'Angelo, he can do his thing for a big portion of the game, but look how well the Lowry-DeRozan pairing worked in Toronto. Like, if we put those two guys together, they can take turns and really make it work. Like, I could totally see that, like, just throw every possible dollar at DeRozan being a thing for the Lakers next summer. And then the Rondo thing, it's like, well, if they strike out on the A-listers, they have to pay somebody, right? It's the same logic that got Sacramento to, to pay Rondo in the first place. And I could see, I just would really hope they resist just going for the name and just really fully committing to Russell going forward because that would, I really think that could be the worst possible combination of like two max guys 
uh, well, the Lakers can yeah. come up with. So I had James Ham, who's a Kings insider, on, and he expressed confidence that Rondo will be back, which to me means the Kings will heinously overpay for him because <laughs> yeah. that, that's the way that happens. And yeah. that's that's concern. And with the, with DeRozan also, he is not a player that I think top players would really want to play with. And I think that's the lesson that you learn from Carmelo is – if you if you're gonna try to recruit guys using a player that already is there, and this is probably the best example of this is the Lakers with Kobe. If you want to recruit free agents who have a lot of choices, which every guy will, you want those players to be guys that they'll want to play with. And I do not see DeRozan fitting that bill. So you want either guys that do dirty work or guys that are creative and collaborative who will pass you the ball, who will put you in situations to succeed. Like Steph Curry is probably the archetype. LeBron James is a different one, but I think Curry is probably better. Even a guy like Ricky Rubio, just because he doesn't shoot and he passes the ball a lot. So you could do that. And DeMar DeRozan is functionally the opposite of that. He's not a guy who will who will really make you, who you're going to be sitting there when you watch the Raptors, the Lakers going, oh man, playing with that guy would be so much fun. Totally. Where do you think Damian Lillard falls on that spectrum? Because I think my, my biggest concern for the Blazers is that he might wind up being in that category where guys are like, it's not like they actively don't want to play with them, but it's like, eh, you know, eh, we're okay. Like he's going to shoot 20 times a game. Like, eh, I'll just go play somewhere else where there might be a bigger opportunity. Like I, I think that might be a, a hill for them when they're trying to rebuild that roster around them is that that guy likes to shoot a lot uh, and he likes to shoot a lot late and he definitely sees Portland as his team. And that's going to require some selling to basically anyone they want to put around them. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think that, Offensively, I mean, C.J. McCollum's gotten plenty of shots, so I think that you can make the argument. Granted, if you're trying to play with both of them, then that gets a little bit more complicated. However, his defense is still bad, and I think that's really something, bad. like if I were a center, I would be sitting there going, uh, I'm just going to be getting a lot of work. I mean, you can say that in a good way or a bad way, because you'll get a lot of block opportunities, which is kind of exciting. But you're just going to be getting, you're going to probably get in foul trouble and things like that. And Lillard, what I would say with him is he's a willing passer. He's just needs to have the right opportunity. You know, like he's not like DeRozan or let's say Kobe, who sometimes they see the pass and they just go, meh. Like that, those are the guys if I were playing that would drive me crazy. Because where they see you and they know it's a better play and they don't make it. And totally. And he's, I, not, he's not the same level black hole, I agree. But I do think he's. When you have that spectrum, I think he's a little bit further towards that maybe I wouldn't really want to play with him than his general reputation, if that makes sense. Like, I think he's probably a little bit more off-putting to his fellow players uh, than perception has kind of caught up to, if that makes sense. Yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely a fair way. And one of the other parts of this young people we were talking about before is I think a lot of these young guys would be really fun to play with. Towns is a great passer for his size. Porzingis has a has a good personality. He's unselfish. I mean, he's not a great passer, but he does a lot of the... He's also very willing to do the little things. And, you know, and Moutier passes the ball. I mean, he takes some bad shots now, but that's just because he has to because nobody on Denver will do it. Like, I think that the young guys that are coming in now are, I think they're a little bit, their basketball IQ on the aggregate, I think is a little bit higher than some of the great players of, of prior generations. I'm not saying top to bottom. I'm just saying that like, I think that, I think that this group for the most part would be, would be good teammates. Yeah. And this rookie class is just stacked. 
I mean, that's another thing, too, is that we've really been in a real drought when it comes to rookie classes in terms of, like, multiple impact players and guys who you can see being, like, one year away. You know, there was just such a rash of injuries there for a couple of seasons that just, you know, decimated classes where it became sort of, like, presumptive rookie of the year candidates. And this year you've got a nice race with the top two. And you've also got a ton of guys, like even the worst performers, like by the advanced numbers, like, you know, Moody is like one of the worst performers in the league, right? Like even his ceiling is so high and it doesn't really seem like it's that far away that this could go down, I think, as one of the better classes in recent memory. And it's also has the benefit of being having a strong top and having a strong middle. Like I think there are a lot of guys from this group that will be rotation players and be starters. And for me, the the three ways that I evaluate any class is stars, starters and rotation players so most classes don't have all three you know the class that probably has all three is is 2003 you know like that's a group and jordan's class there are there are a couple of them that you know are, are relatively strong in all of them most classes are either good in one or maybe two and what i like about it is they're definitely top guys i mean towns is special porzingis has a high ceiling moody has a high ceiling you know guys like that but Bobby Portis, I think, will be a good player. I, I just think you could, if you look down this, Devin Booker. I think Devin Booker could be a like a long term player, be a maybe not your best starter, but you know if he's your fourth or fifth player on your on a starting lineup, you'd be really thrilled, and that is awesome because what you need as a league is you need those guys to replenish. And if we can have another couple years, let's say you know let's say two out of the next five years have a similar model. With the way that guys are taking care of their bodies now, that will be enough to keep the talent level high for a long time and possibly even be enough to lead to allow them to expand, which is something I think the league should be doing soon. Here's a question for you. Do you think that Devin Booker can keep up his 71% three-point shooting for the rest of his career? <laughs> Signs point to no. But his his shooting no, his shoot, unbelievable start. I mean, this his guy shooting is... form is pure, man. I mean, he's oh, I he's a guy who like what I love about Devin Booker is he does one thing at an NBA level right now, and unlike Hashim's the beat with shot blocking, his one thing is enough to keep him in the league. Oh, and, totally. And he wants he, to play. He wants to get better. So if he just works on anything else, he'll be good. I mean, there's been so many guys who come in as like the, the shooting team prodigies who just or like just you know, hey, they're shooters and nothing else. And then they get to the NBA stage and they just don't have the confidence to do it, to actually go through with it. For him to come out of the gate in the first six weeks of his career and basically hit three out of every four three-pointers he's putting up uh, for a team that's competitive, uh, you know, so the minutes aren't meaningless, you know, and him really making Hornacek make some decisions in terms of, like, his rotation. Like, he's kind of, like, forcing uh, their hand a little bit. And to do it at 19 and just turn 19? Youngest guy in the league, right? Yeah, it's ridiculous. And and what is a, a challenge for them, I think that's a great word to use, is that a player like Devin Booker should play more with starters because he's a he's a supporting guy. You know, he, you need somebody else to create his shots. And so if you want to do that, then unless you're going to play the trio of Brandon Knight, Eric Bledsoe, and Devin Booker, it might be better to stagger Knight a little bit to the second unit where he can just kill backups. And, I mean, that's not to say, like, the beauty of the NBA is that it's a 48-minute game. You don't have to do that all the time. I think you start with Knight, then you do a quick pull, and then you bring, then you play Knight with Booker as well. So you kind of filter them all in. And I think that that's where they're going to go. Personally, I think that's where they're going to go. But they are going to have to figure that out. And it's also really hard for them because the three spot is just 
useless for them right now. I mean, PJ Tucker's all right, and you have all these guys. TJ Warren, I think, is more of a four than a three, personally. I think that I, I love him there. I think that could be interesting. And the Suns, you know, like, uh, Brandon Knight's fine. He's having a good year. I like him as a player, but it's like, imagine if they had the Lakers pick right now, and that could be, you know, I mean, it's not going to be a top three guy, so it's probably not going to be Ben Simmons, but it could be a guy who would be a really useful part of their future. Yeah, and still everything about their last, like, 18 months, I still haven't figured it out. You know, it still doesn't make sense. And, like, you could look at the numbers and say, you know, Bledsoe and Knight are both having pretty much the best possible season they could probably hope for, especially when they're both out there. And, like, where has it gotten them, you know? Yeah, they're, like, three, they're three games under five hundred. they They're they have a positive point differential, but it's barely positive. And, like, and what, what should be scary to the Suns is, to the Suns fans, is that, the Rockets have played horribly, and they're eleven and twelve. Like they're they're yeah, a team. And, all, and also scary. Tyson Chandler has already spent time on the injured list, and they've got him locked down for another four years. You know, yeah. they're, they're. I mean, we talked about it in the summer, but like I just I've had trouble with them. I think the the issue is that they've never really embraced an identity and what I, the term that I used back in my vegan fish tacos days was timetable of contention. And for me, unless you're a team that has the truly elite talents. You, it, it, assuming it matters to you, you need to pick a time to peak. And I think that they've just at various moments in time just gone now, 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 like just changed it around a bunch of times. And that's hard. You know, it's hard to build a team that way because you're going to have guys that are just aging at different points. And if the reason they got Tyson Chandler was because they thought it would help them with LaMarcus Aldridge, that was just crazy talk. There are other reasons to do it, but he doesn't align with anybody else on this team. Yeah, that that whole Lamarcus thing still also does not make any sense to me. I mean, the how it's played out in San Antonio has been much closer to how I thought it would play out than any scenario involving the Suns. So I don't. Hopefully, those moves were not uh, Aldridge driven. And now look, Phoenix is stuck, probably selling low on Marquis Morris. Like how, in terms of like dropping stocks this season, has anybody fallen more than Marquis? Maybe Ty Lawson. Ty Lawson. I mean, Ty, can yeah. you, if we had, if, if you had come to the two of us when we were recording the season preview podcast and said, there is a meaningful chance that the Rockets will decline his, the year he made non-guaranteed, we'd be sitting there going, you're insane. Yeah. Unless, and unless I've, there was some sort of off the court, you know, disaster. And I haven't heard of that. Well, I, I, I think that anytime you've got a player where he's being asked questions about his substance abuse, like documented substance abuse problems, and he's not acknowledging them in a meaningful way, which was what I took from his comments to Adrian Wojnarowski before the season, I think that has to factor into your evaluation of that player. Uh, So that's not giving him a pass, but that's saying, like, look, he may or may not have actually solved the issues that were driving some of the the problems in Denver. Is he going to be able to kind of flip a switch and turn it around and, and get back to where he needs to be to really help Houston? I don't know. But going back to Marquise, I mean, Marquise has been freaking terrible. And I was I was a big Marquise guy last year. I thought he had a really nice season. I thought he was arguably, you know, right there with Bledsoe in terms of their most important core guys. And just whether it's because of, you know, the trade of his brother, whether it's the legal stuff hanging over him, whether it's just his mid-range shooting stuff kind of coming back to earth and now he's kind of scrambling, doesn't know what to do whether it's tension with Hornacek, whether it's he thought they were going to trade him and they just didn't and now he's stuck. I mean, all those things may be coming together, but it's just like now that they're DNPing him, giving him you know barely any minutes, some of these younger guys are kind of cracking into the rotation. 
it's almost like he's the forgotten guy. It's like, boy, it's just such bad asset management when you take a guy from where he was 12 months ago and get to this point. You know what I mean? It's crazy. And the way that I've had, the way that I've thought about this is he turned 26 during the off season. He was, as you said, he was an important player. He was an integral part of their success last year. He now, both, if you look at the numbers, that's one thing, but when you watch them, they're better when John Lure and or Toledovich is out there. John Lure they basically got for a song. Toledovich, they you know, they paid him a meaningful amount of money, but it was in a situation where most of the other teams were already out and, you know, after they missed on Lamarcus. And so it's like these two guys that you made basically zero investment in, that you don't really have much future at money in, have just outplayed this dude. And that is so weird for a guy who is still on the er- on the on the front edge of his prime. Totally. And would any be, anybody be surprised if it was like a, like a change of scenery bounce back here, you know? Yeah, which is like, why they have to be terrified about trading him. I mean, because, <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you're sitting there, and I mean, I've been saying it since since July, but if the, if the Suns traded him to the Pistons, that would just be the most insane proposition. And it's it's possible. I don't think that's the most likely place for him. I've been intrigued by the idea of him going to the Pelicans, but... I mean, if you, because because wherever you trade him, in all likelihood, not only are you going to have the spite bounce back, but he's almost definitely going to be in a better situation. So yeah, I mean, you're sitting there going, well, we're going to do that, and but at the same point, why would any team trade for him, giving up assets, even with that being an acknowledged, even if you said it was a certainty, that you don't have the the Suns don't have the leverage to ask for that because the guy isn't doing anything. Well, and the Suns are totally out of leverage. I mean, what are they going to do? Just let them rot? Like, you know, it's all the people who are looking to buy low are going to be swarming around them right now with just junk offers of whatever makes it work legally. It's like it it's like Thomas Robinson, except that he's actually performed. <laughs> yeah, he has a ceiling, like, and he can be a productive player. And if he's shooting better, then you know he can be a guy that you really go to regularly. Uh, yeah. So again, it's just an example of poor asset management. You look at you know, the Isaiah Thomas situation is another example of that. You know, the, the draft pick that you mentioned going to Philly, I think that's another example. It just doesn't really seem like these guys who are trying to play the asset game are really doing it that well. And conceptually, if, well, beyond the, okay, I'm going to go on a separate note with that, which is if Milwaukee, Milwaukee has done a lot of really good things. I mean, getting Giannis where they did, Jabari is going to be a good player. They got Greg Monroe for nothing. You know, lots of lots of good things there. They have made some of the most insane mistakes in the last five years of any team. But they're still, I mean, other than this year, they're 9-14. and 14, They're still successful. Like, okay, so we talked about how the Suns part of that trade is, is weird. The Bucks traded a top, they traded the Lakers pick for Michael Carter-Williams, who would not have been, who was not worth that pick. They traded away a future first for Grievous Vasquez. And the most egregious of all this is a trade that also involves the Suns, which is that they, as as I understand it, based on the mechanics of the trade, I do not have any insight, direct insight. If they had been willing to take Karan Butler's flotsam contract, they probably could have gotten Eric Bledsoe in the deal where they sent J.J. Redick, because basically it was kind of about who, who was giving up the better asset. And they declined to do that, so they got so they got something less. So they still made a good trade, but they could have made a better trade. And then they ended up taking Crom Butler anyway. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that you could have a pretty good post of like 
the, the worst mistakes, and then also like the biggest beneficiaries of Buck trade. So you've got you've got JJ Redick, and you've got Tobias Harris, and then you've got Zaza. You know, I mean, like the like there's just all over the league. There's all these guys who Jared Jared Dudley going to the Wizards for nothing. Yeah, when they had no options after Paul Pierce left. It's insane, and yet they still have, like you were saying, one of the best collections of under-25 talent in the league. They have so. Chris Middle. I mean, because the other component of it is they've made some of the best trades in the last five years, too. They got The trade they got to get Chris Middleton and Brandon Jennings was an unbelievable trade. Getting a first-round pick to get Jared Dudley was an unbelievably good trade. They, they like And Greg Monroe, I mean, the way that they did that. But then they gave away Zaza Pachulia and Jared Dudley for nothing. So you're like... I have so much trouble talking about the Bucks because I actually pitched a piece to Real GM during the summer about this, but I, I ended up not writing it. They, they're like, of course you can write it, but I don't know how to talk about this team because they are good, they are fun, even though they can't shoot, but they could be so much better so easily. Like, imagine if we were sitting there with this Bucks team and they had the Lakers pick coming to them next year. Just imagine what we would be what we would be thinking about, like the way that you and I talk about the Utah Jazz. We will be talking about frothing. the Bucks that way. Yeah, it would be legitimate frothing at the mouth. I mean, if you yeah, now you're you're adding whoever Simmons or whoever else you want to put into the mix, Scal, whoever else you want to put in the mix there. Well, and yeah. imagine imagine that they were missing the playoffs like they are now, which I think they would be. So so you're sitting there going, okay, so they're not going to get a top three guy. So it's probably not going to be Ben Simmons. Probably not going to be Scal. So like, let's say they're let's say they're sitting there and going, okay, they have like a fifty percent chance of getting. Chris Dunn, Jalen Brown, guy like that, maybe maybe a guy like Podol, you know, a good or Ellenson who went to Marquette, who's not too far away, and so you have a chance of getting that. But then their own pick will probably be somewhere in the ten range, and then you're gonna so you're gonna get two rotation players on a team that is already good and is already deep. And yeah, here's a here's a better way. Here's how what I should have said: Would you rather have Jamal Murray next year, or would you rather have Michael Carter Williams? Oh. oh. <laughs> Well, because okay, okay. This uh, Nate, 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 and I had this argument a couple days uh, when we were doing the prospects podcast. I never thought Michael Carter Williams was going to be good. Straight up, never thought it. Did you like? Was he a guy? How? What was your arc with Michael Carter Williams? Um, when he was coming into the draft, I was not high on him. I mean, I think I had all the basic concerns that people had. I during that rookie of the year race, I thought he deserved the rookie of the year just because. It was just such a messy race of imperfect candidates, and it was kind of like he was the best of a bad bunch. And then the buzz on him, basically, as soon as that season ended, turned really bad really quickly. Like, just going to the USA camps, and this guy can't hit a shot. He's out there by himself on the court, shooting around for 10 minutes. He can barely hit anything. You know, where's the improvement coming from? What's Philly dealing with him? All of it was just sort of red flaggy. Uh, The only reason why... I could see Milwaukee's standpoint on that trade was, you know, they're just trying to reset the clock. And, and I didn't necessarily, I wasn't convinced when they traded for him that he was going to be their long-term answer or that they viewed him that way. I thought they were just kind of cheaping out and paying Middleton or preparing to pay Middleton instead of paying both Middleton and Knight, which I think if they could do it over again, they'd probably have to seriously consider about paying both those guys. So I, I thought it was just a total financial move from Milwaukee's standpoint which is unfortunate because you know those guys are making money just based on how the team's kind of been turning around. So I wish they had just you know decided to bite the bullet and pay both Middleton and uh, and Knight rather than doing that trade. But no, I've never really been that high on on Carter Williams's prospects, and I think basically the ship has sailed with him. Like the time to improve on what he's really bad at has already passed. You know, like he needs to start. He he needs to have 
shown improvement already because he came in so old and he hasn't really made the strides. So I don't, I don't know. I, I wasn't surprised at all that like Grievous was you know pushing him for minutes uh, this season. Like I, it was one of those things, one of those predictions I kind of had in the off season that came true. And to me, I don't really know how this turns around. Like I kind of think he is who he is. They're in a tough spot with him, and I mean I can see part of it was probably also Jason Kidd thinking, oh, like I can I can fix him. I, I I can see his problems, and I and I understand that. You know that there's a part of you that always kind of thinks that and is optimistic. And also the Lakers pick was such a nebulous asset. You know, it's going to come at some point. It's probably going to be good, but you never really know. And it's turned out just because of how terrible they've been that it's probably going to be a really good asset. And this yeah, was, I, was a, I, I was so convinced at the time of the trade that that was like the, the prime asset. You know so do I. Mean? I yeah. Well, the other one well, like that, when I, I think this is another point. I wrote about this for the Sporting News is, if what goes to the six, Sixers from the Kings is the unprotected 2019 pick, that could be insane. You're way ahead of me looking on that one. Like, I haven't even uh, dug into that. Well, what do we think about that trade now in light of Stauskas being pretty bad at basketball? I still think of it the same. I thought he was, like, the third best asset they got in that trade. <laughs> yeah. I yeah, mean, I he, he still think... he still has potential. I mean, he what what you look at with him is he is the type of guy that could be a late bloomer. Because he's still pretty young, he's. Uh, I mean, what he, he he's not Devin Booker. You know, he's not a guy who it translated right away. But yeah, I mean, th- to me, the thing with that with that is that the Sixers gave up nothing. I mean, they yeah, gave up sure. absolutely nothing. I mean, it was cap space they weren't going to use. They gave up a little bit of flexibility for next year, and then they ended up most of the flexibility for next year that they gave up. They made the trade with the Warriors and got rid of it anyway. And the point that a few people have brought up, I think, I think Nate's probably the best person at this, is they could have stretched those guys and basically not given up assets, and it would have been a little bit more money on their books, but not horrendously so. Yeah, so when I look at Stauskas, I mean, he's just another guy. We always talk about Okafor kind of dying without a point guard, but he's another guy who just needs a legitimate point guard to see who he can actually be, which is another reason why I was kind of hard on Hinky these last couple of weeks and, and months because like that's a guy who is going to need if he's going to become who he is it's going to be totally confidence based you know like if he's going to be that shooter like we're talking about like you know in the same category as Booker or whoever like that's going to completely come through having done it and being put in a position to succeed and he was completely set up for failure this year and guess what he's failed miserably uh, in kind of less dramatic ways you know not the off court nonsense that Okafor's gotten into but. Uh, he's just being allowed basically to waste a year of his life. Uh, and so that is one of the big frustrations I have with Philly's management of sort of the post-trade stuff because, you know, if he turns out to be nothing, that trade does look slightly different to me, not quite as impressive. But, of course, like you're saying, maybe he's not the real headliner of it. Sure would have been nice if he was in a position where he could be a meaningful contributor where now you're looking forward to next season and being like, yeah, we've got Stauskas and Covington. And these are two guys who you, you can kind of lock in as rotation guys. You know, the roster's starting to come together a little bit. I'm not sure he's there right now. Can we do? Can we file an injunction to get Stauskas on the on the Pistons? Because I just feel like that would be intriguing. Well, and that's I mean that's a good kind of comparison because you've got a team that's taking things more seriously, and now it's younger guys who are sort of like who are these guys? You know, like Kentavious Caldwell Pope. Like I think his reputation has taken a big leap forward this year, right? Like people are like, hey, this is a guy. Uh, who's going to get paid, first of all, big time, like whenever they've got to go through the extension process. Uh, but he's a player who's kind of in a more functional environment and really 
finding some strides and, and making it happen. And, you know, it's a pretty direct contrast to to the process. Now, and yeah. and the, the huge beef that I have, and you, you touched on this, that I have with what they did, I think they made all the big moves were right. I think that I agree with all of them. You know, maybe I wasn't uh, Okafor Moutier was I think a close call just considering their existing talent. But let's say let's take I I had Okafor as my number two player, so I can't really knock that too hard. The challenge with them, and which is so frustrating to me, is that they could have done some small things that would have made them better, would have made them more able to evaluate their talent, and they didn't. Like I think that. Some of that could have been that some of those players said no. Like, one of the guys that I've harped on them with is is Jeremy Lin. Like, would I have offered Jeremy Lin $8 million to be their point guard for this year and put a non-guaranteed second year on this? Yes. So you would have gotten more money than he got paid in his two years combined. You know, you probably could have gotten him for five, I would guess. I mean, he just played on a moribund team in, in L.A., and so if you could get a guy like that, because then you could evaluate how guys like Stauskas and Okafor and Noel will work with a competent point guard. I mean, and you're not going to be so good that you're costing yourself real future assets. I mean, that's you look at what the Lakers were last year. Like the Lakers had a lot more constituent talent than the than the Sixers did, and they were terrible. So like you could be at that level and you get it at the point guard spot, particularly be dis, as a distributional guy. And you can then you can evaluate because right now if you're sitting there with the Sixers, if you're the Sixers or you're any other team, how do you assign a value to trade any of those trade for or trade any of those guys? Yeah, for sure. And I mean, it's also I do think in this calculation, I don't think Philadelphia's start could have gone any worse to make the decision not to get a point guard look any worse than it does right now now if that makes sense like of all the scenarios the ways that things could have played out like this has basically been their worst case scenario i mean okafer doing the off-court stuff i did not see coming in a million years i mean all the all the stuff like coach k coming to his defense was the kinds of things that you heard about him before the draft it's just sort of like a plus person no issues like clearly you know defense is going to take a while but you know, this is a, a franchise building block and so clearly he got sucked into this losing culture in a way that they probably weren't anticipating either that has kind of made a lot of this other stuff spiral, I think, maybe, and look worse than, you know, they probably were calculating you know, over the summer. But I think it's a good lesson, you know, for all tanking GMs in general is, you know, if you've got big guys who you consider to be, uh, or, or even, you know, wings like Ostowski, if you've got young prospects who you're trying to develop, you better have at least a competent point guard because otherwise things can go south really quick. I think that point guard is just a mandatory thing for your team to be watchable you know to be engaging and entertaining and and it's not a guarantee that your team is going to be any good i mean you can you can do oh you can have a good point guard and be bad you can have a but if you have a bad point guard situation look at the nets it's really (laughs) hard it's really hard to succeed that way it's not impossible teams have done it but it's really hard yeah please don't look at the nets by the way yo no don't I mean, Brooke Lopez is still a wonderful talent, Thaddeus Young. I mean, it's also weird that they played two of their best games of the season against the Warriors, which is just strange. But it, it happens. Like, they have talent, but when you don't... What what the point guard does is it's it's the WD-40, it's the grease, it's what makes the engine work. That's what a primary ball handler is supposed to do. That's why, like, a guy like Ricky Rubio, you look at his on-off for the for the Wolves, and it's it's huge because he is what enables a lot of their systems work. He's also underrated defensively. And what's more important, it's kind of like what some people say about a lawyer, which is like, 
you never know how much you need one until you don't have one. You know, it's kind of like there are a lot of things that are like that. And in basketball, to me, that's having a guy who can run your offense. Well, so real quick on the Nets, what did you think of Lionel's comments about how he doesn't need to stay up late at night because they don't have the talent? I hadn't heard that. Okay, so he made a comment before a game a couple weeks ago, and I want to be fair to him, so I'm going to try to phrase it a little better than I just did. But he made a comment along the lines of, you know, basically he's not losing sleep at night over their performance because he looks at their talent and realizes that on a lot of nights they're just outclassed. So at that point, staying up late and agonizing over that, you know, it does more harm than good was basically what he was trying to say. Um, And he was – but at the same time, like, that's a pretty rough indictment of his own roster publicly. Uh, and at the same time, it's not exactly an inspiring message for the fan base when it's like, well, the coach has kind of given up on you know, going above and beyond with the work, work ethic because sort of mailed it in. I don't know. I mean, of all the things that coaches have said so far this year, I thought that was one that definitely jumped out to me uh, as being indicative of a coach who probably shouldn't be back next year. I mean, they've got a long way to go. I mean, clearly they've got very limited upside here these next couple of years. But to have somebody just kind of publicly giving up in that manner or publicly making those kinds of concessions and without any real way to make it a positive spin on it, you know, yeah. that to me is just sort of like, what does that tell your fan base? It basically says, look, don't renew season tickets. You know, catch us in 2019 when we might have a clue about what we're trying to do. With my background, and I've done kind of PRE things before, the first thing that I think about with any quote is what can be gained from it. And the answer in that is nothing. You know, like that's not the reason you shouldn't say that is not because it, it is untrue or anything like that. It's what do you have to be gained? I mean, are you making a statement to your players? Is that statement that they aren't good? Yes, probably. Do they need that from their coach? No, because this isn't a team that needs their butts kicked. This isn't the Houston Rockets. You know, this isn't a team that you're sitting there going, oh, well, they should be so much better than they are. They aren't. So what you do is you you try to put a gag on your coach to basically not say that. You say, yeah, it's a little bit frustrating and things like that. And then you hire Scott Brooks in the offseason and you pay him a bunch of money and you hope that he can maximize whatever pieces you have that, and you make those players buy into your offensive, to your defensive strategy and everything else. And you make, you keep them happy. And then once you actually can get talent, then you get a better coach. For sure. For sure. All right. Well, you're, you've almost exhausted me, Danny. Yep. That's, that, that's what we do. You know, that, that's the, that's <laughs> the way we do this, but thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's always a pleasure. It's good chatting and uh, hopefully we'll, We'll get to see uh, some more good basketball here these next couple of days. Do you think the Warriors are going to beat the Celtics? I do. I think that's. I think that's most likely. I'm not going to say it's definite, especially with Clay potentially missing the game. But I mean, they're favor- They should be favored in every game they play for a while. It's ridiculous. All it right. Is. Well, if we get to Christmas and they're still undefeated, I might have to come up there to watch that game. And I'm sure you'll probably be at that, skipping your. Uh, any family festivities? Am the, I right? This has already been discussed. It has already been argued, and it has not been resolved. well i'm betting on you being at the game (laughs) all right thanks again to ben golliver for taking the time you can read him in sports illustrated si.com and he is an excellent follow also on twitter at ben golliver b-e-n-g-o-l-l-i-v-e-r and as i said in the introduction this is the 100th episode of real jam radio the counting gets a little bit weird but i think 100's at a fair point for this one and I try not to get focused on round numbers, just like I try not to with athletes, you know, with with basketball players and all that. But 100 means something to me in this context because it also pretty much marks two years. It was a little bit before now. And 
you know, that's that's a long time. It's it's something that I have legitimately loved doing, and I wanted to take a little bit of time to thank some of the people that have really helped make this possible. And for me, that starts with Real GM. I mean, Real GM has been my writing home for over six years, actually getting close to seven now, and I've I've loved pretty much every second of it. I, they've been so supportive of me with my writing with them and with everybody else. And it's rare to see somebody who has really stuck it out with a, a company. And the reason why I've done that with Real GM is because they've treated me so well. And I'm not going to name any names there because I feel like it's it's kind of better to, to not do that. And the people who are listening know who they are and they know how much their support means to me and how much it has always meant to me. And beyond that, I'd like to thank the listeners because that is really what has made this so much fun and why I've been able to kind of be able to continue doing this. And it's very different than Dunked On. I love doing doing Dunked On as well, but I like the idea of a long-form conversation. And the other person that I wanted to take some time to specifically thank is, is Ethan Sherwood-Strauss. And the reason for that is that Ethan was on, I believe it was the second episode, and he and I have known each other for years at this point. And it was the conversation with him that made me really think that this format could work as a podcast. And at that time, there wasn't really much in the basketball realm that did that. And it was that that made me think, okay, this is something that people are actually going to enjoy. And it has been a thrill to be able to expand that concept and be able to work with some really amazing people. And Ben Ben is a great representation for me because he is somebody who was an inspiration to me when I started. Blazers Edge was one of the best team-specific blogs, and at that time when I was, you know, looking looking at writing, that was where a lot of the best work was happening, and Kevin Pelton's another one of those who was writing at Basketball Prospectus, and to be able to have people like that and be able to not only have them on the, sh- on the show now, but to know them on a personal level and know, know them as, as human beings and how much fun that is, has really been one of the, the major takeaways of this, and it, this is something that started after I'd been covering the league for a series of years and made connections. But to be able to have these conversations is—it's a genuine thrill. It's something that I love doing. It's something that I will do as long as I can. I'm—I'm th- I'm thrilled that I get the opportunity and that people enjoy it. And really, that's—that's that's all you can ever ask for. So, thank you so much to everybody who has made this a reality. Everyone who will continue to do it. And as I always say, your input is greatly appreciated. I think that. You can do that in a series of ways. You can hit me up on Twitter at Danny LaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can email me. I have a Gmail now for this kind of thing. It's MBA at gmail.com. I read everything. I respond to as much as I can, and I really do appreciate it. And also, as I, as I try to say sometimes, is if there's somebody that you think would be a good guest, let me know, but also let them know because sometimes that is a way to really make that connection. I mean, in a lot of ways, they'll, they'll probably already do it, but, you know, maybe it puts the thought in their head. And I don't really get many no's anymore, but it does help. And so I, I really do appreciate all that, and I appreciate the kind words. And leaving a review, let's say, on iTunes if you enjoy it is something that actually really does help us. And Nate and I with Dunked On have, have gotten sponsors, and a big part of that is really not only the downloads and the subscriptions, but also the reviews, because that is something that iTunes uses in their rankings. I don't exactly know how. It's kind of a black box as far as I know. But I, I really do appreciate it, and we we kind of talk about it casually at some points, but there are times that I, you know, if I'm feeling a little bit down, I'll go and I'll look at the reviews for, for either one of them, and the nice things people say, it, it really does it really does lift your spirits sometimes, and it's such a thrill for me to be able to do things with this and with writing that people enjoy. And if if people weren't enjoying it, I don't think I would do it anymore, even though I love doing it and love covering games. But 
that is what makes this so much fun is to be able to to do that even in some small degree and I'm somebody who, with my background, which I don't talk about very much on this, who's done a lot of other things that I understand that sports can be a very frivolous thing. I understand that. But to be able to use that as a platform to both talk about other things and to make people enjoy things and think about them differently, that, that there's probably no greater thrill in terms of a professional thing that I will really have. So thank you so much for being a part of this journey. I hope you continue with it. I will keep continuing doing it. Take care and make it a great day. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be confusing. Like Swedish techno confusing. Bok, bok, meow, meow. Dance with me, purple cow. Bok, bok, meow, meow. Ooh, you lovely cow. Geico makes it easy. With 24-7 access, all you have to do is go to Geico.com and you could save money on car insurance. It just makes sense. Unlike, you know. Dance with me, purple cow. I like your mood.